You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Their own mysteries. Slagtown, I hate this place. And their own crimes. My fellow newcomers will work very hard to make as much money as they can to give to me. Sykes, here's your new partner. My true name is Stangia Sorens Ah. Sorensa, well, Gesundheit. Now, James Kahn. So what do you got? This will stop anything. Mandy Patekin are headed deep into newcomer territory. Get the ass, the Your mother mates out of season. Into the heart of a mystery. Inside an alien world of violence. Desire. Tell me the truth. Have you ever made it with one of us? <laughs> and power. A sweet indulgence from our past. Resurrected for our future. It is called Jabluka. Your people do not know about this part of our past. Beyond their darkest fears. He's dead. No, he's not. Lies an evil beyond imagination. Alien Nation. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Josh Stewart. Your mother mates out of season. Also back in the booth is Mr. Cecil Trachtenberg. Hey, thanks for having me. I wish I had another line from the movie, but uh, I don't. On this special episode, we are looking at the 1988 film from Graham Baker, Alien Nation. When an alien ship comes to America, depositing a quarter of a million newcomers who try to live the American dream, among them is Detective Sam Francisco, played by Mandy Patinkin. He's partnered with a specious cop, Matthew Sykes, played by James Kahn. Together, the two of them solve a mystery that may jeopardize the human and newcomer relations forever. We will be getting the spoilers for this film. Maybe the TV series, possibly District 9 as well, you have been warned. So, Josh, when was the first time you saw Alien Nation, and what did you think? I grew up with the the series in reruns constantly on the Sci-Fi Channel, 
And I know my dad loved the show, and I remember he liked the movie, and I'm sure I saw it some at some point then, unaware which was the movie and which was the show. Uh, as far as full awareness, I just recently, you know, sat down and paid close attention to the movie for the first time within the last month. And Cecil, how about yourself? It had to be sometime in the 90s. There was a time, like early 90s, where I was on just a sci-fi binge, and I was renting every sci-fi film that could possibly be rented and this was just one of them because it came out in the late 80s it was good i enjoyed it but i felt that it just it wasn't all there it was it, it had a great idea and it just didn't gel as well as i thought it should have and then i found out later which i'm sure we'll get into like why it was like that I feel like this was on a lot more than it was. I mean, this was 1988, so I would have been in high school when this came out. Don't think I saw it at the theater. I think it was a rental, or it might have been an HBO thing. If it was an HBO thing, then it was probably on a lot, because they'd love to rerun their movies quite often. I remember really, really liking this. For whatever reason, I never caught up with the TV show. Something about it kept me away. I don't know what it was. But Alienation itself reminded me of so many things that I loved. It reminded me a lot of V. It reminded me a lot of, well, buddy cop films, of course. This was right around the time that we were getting those jokes in uh, The Last Action Hero of all of the different buddy cop pairings, you know. Radcliffe, you're pulling duty with the animated cat. I am toots. Getting a flea bath later. Join me. You touch me again, furball, and I'll kill you. I can prove this is a movie. Shh. Who the hell are you, kid? Look out there, this is a cartoon cat. He's supposed to be back on duty. He was only suspended for a month. Now shut up. Listen to what I'm saying. An animated cat just walked into the squad room. Hello? He'll do it again tomorrow, so what's your point? That cat is one of the best men I got. So it was playing with some of that stuff, which I appreciated, too. I barely recognized Mandy Patinkin in the makeup in this. I thought he was great, and I thought James Caan was fantastic in this. It's an uneven film, but it's got a lot of great ideas. And yeah, to your point, I think there are times where they could probably explore them a little more. At times, I'm also reminded of a really awful film, Bright, which tries to do something like that, but their whole thing of orcs and goblins and fairies and elves and all that stuff being real, that means that this stuff with them has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Whereas with this one, they are very quick to set up. This ship came into our atmosphere, only one ship, only one place, and this is set very squarely in the year of 1991, so we've only really had three years to acclimate to the newcomers, and I'm surprised that they've actually integrated this quickly into our society. Yeah, I opted to skip out on Bright, and it sounds like uh, everybody has confirmed that I made the right choice. <laughs> I have gone to a degree that's like embarrassing full J.R.R. Tolkien on this. Like, there are sub-documents of each of the races that detail the history of this world on and on and on and on. I think I have, like, 30 pages of just talking about different rules and weird things and the races and nuances and the different stereotypes in the modern world about each one of the races. I've gone I've gone ham on this. I, I really... I do. I want this to be my Star Wars. 
it definitely gave me the same kind of vibes. I mean, if you look at the concept, it's almost the same thing. It's just a different creature in the buddy space. And I'm sure there are a lot of really heavy-handed allegories, too. <laughs> Bright was uh, a lot like Shadowrun, which uh, I went in watching. I was really like, oh, could, could this be like the Shadowrun movie that we never got? And I was like, in the end, it was like okay at best like i didn't hate it but i just kind of thought it was a gigantic wasted opportunity but more so to to the movie i agree with you james khan james khan's always great but i felt that in this he was almost too angry they were uh really pushing it and as i discovered uh looking because i'm actually going to do a video on this sometime in the near future galen heard was really pushing for this just to be a buddy cop alien movie and that was really sad because that wasn't what the writer wanted the writer wanted more of what the tv show showed uh it was like it was more a little more subtle and this it was just like it it really it was good i enjoyed it and i i still think that it's a good movie but i think that the tv show is a much better interpretation of what it should have been and i love the tv show so whereas i like the movie I love the TV show. I thought the TV show just was was so much better, uh, which is crazy because if you look at the value of money that they put into the movie and the, the level of actors and everything, and then you go into a TV series that was made for Fox, which was still relatively small at the time, and the production value, of course, the movie had higher production values, but I still thought that they did a fantastic job with the TV series, and the writing was what was really on point there. Uh, I thought that uh, they just did such a better job with the stories and kind of making you feel like you were a part of that world. They made the newcomers more interesting than just kind of, oh, they're aliens and they were, they were former slaves, but they were, that's why they were able to integrate in our society so quickly. And it just kind of, they almost brushed over them to rush to the buddy cop story. And that kind of bummed me out. Yeah. I feel pretty much the same way. The movie very much just feels like a launch pad for a lot of those ideas. And the show did a good job of fleshing them out. That's the upside of an extended series, whereas the movie, they really, really went. I mean, there are a lot of very familiar buddy cop stereotypes that we'll get into as we go along, but it definitely feels like they made it fit more in a mold that already existed rather than kind of letting it breathe into its own world. Yeah, had this movie come out 20 years earlier, it could have just as easily had been an Asian person rather than an alien. There's the language barrier. So the whole thing of Sykes, his name sounding like shithead in their language. There's the idea of George slash Sam eating weird food like raw beaver. Okay. And I can just see 20 years earlier, Dirty Harry being like, oh, get this fucking chop suey out of my plate kind of thing. You know, just it feels like it's playing with those. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Like not even like almost the same year. The Dead's Deadpool came out and that was the one where Dirty Harry did partner up with an Asian American. I was, I think it was Evan Kim who also was in the first episode of the Alienation Show. So yeah, that that wasn't as as far off as it seemed. I don't think, <laughs> but you know, Harry never evolved. Yeah, I think you got a point there. I mean, it, it definitely could have been the the same thing. It really just do a, a slight rewrite 
And it, it would fit with almost any kind of thing, you know, any kind of fish out of water story. Oh, well, here they have this guy. He's, you know, all by the books guy. And then here's the, whoa, crazy guy who we've never had before. And, you know, from every buddy cop movie, it's all they just mushed it together. And it was like, oh, you know, this time it's an alien. And it could have been something else, someone from another country, someone from, in the case of Bright, you've got uh, a monster. And so it, they didn't go as far as they should have with the whole thought. And that really is, you know, it falls on the back of the producer. I have to say, I'm surprised too to hear you guys say that the TV show was so good. I know that there are other TV shows that have come off of movies that have been really good. I'm a huge MASH fan. I really, if memory serves, I liked Alice quite a bit, though Alice, the TV show and Alice doesn't live here anymore. Wow, what a different show that was. But most of the time when you get the spin-offs of movies, it's very much, at least in the old days, it was very much law of diminishing returns. There were very few, as far as what I can remember, where it's like, oh wow, this show takes what the movie does, to your point, and, and spins it off into its own thing and becomes this whole wonderful universe. Like, now you look at Watchmen, granted that was a uh, comic book first or graphic novel, you look at Fargo, but again, Fargo is so different in the way that they handle each season being very different from the previous seasons, but I'm just shocked to hear you guys, well, shocked might be a little too strong, I'm surprised to hear you guys say how good and how much more thought out the TV show was. I guess they had a lot more time to work out things, but it's nice to hear that the TV show took what was there, those seeds, and grew them into something much more lush. Yeah, there's definitely only a few shows that, that really do that. I think in the 90s, the, the the only other ones that I was really into that same level of quality, like I really like the Highlander TV series. I mean, certainly better than most of the sequels. And uh, Stargate SG-1, I remember that was, you know, every week that was my dad's obsession. Like, that show kept going on after I moved out. <laughs> like, it never, it felt like it never ended. But that was the other one that, that really, that really was solid. And I know that the guy that was responsible for Alienation, Rock Neo Band, and he went on to make Farscape, which was an original show that also did extremely well. I have really positive memories of that one, but I also haven't gone back to it in a very long time. With the TV series, it was uh, such a labor of love. It was more of what uh, he wanted the, the movie to be. And he had more time to kind of flesh things out. He had more time to tell the stories and to show the strength of the show. When it got canceled, it I, I don't remember, you know, because we're going back decades. So I don't remember why. It was a combination of lower ratings and it cost a little bit more than Fox was willing to spend. But the fan base was so dedicated that they started a writing uh, campaign because the show never really got a finale. The sh it just kind of ended on a cliffhanger. So what they did was they started a letter writing campaign and they were able to get, uh, I think, four or five made-for-TV movies that continued the story. So even though the show only lasted one season, we still got a series of movies that continued the story afterwards. And as far as I know, I mean, that's one of the very, very few TV series that ended like that, where they were able to come back and continue it. And so that at least gave um, everybody some closure, because after the last one, they had, you know, a little bit of a tie-up of the story, and it all kind of came together, and it was 
was uh, it was really nice. Uh, so it was cool that there was that because not a lot of shows get that. A lot of shows when they get canceled, good night. That's it. Yeah, you're lucky if you can see those last few episodes that didn't air. Exactly. Especially with Fox. <laughs> and in this case, not just one movie, but five extra movies. And from what I understood, I think it was a case where once the, the studio head that was, that canceled the show was gone, the next studio head said, no, no, let's bring it back. <laughs> Which I feel like that's always the case. I ran the gamut on this. I watched every episode of the show. I watched all five of the TV movies. I watched everything because I wanted to, first off, I just wanted to see how it played as an adult because as a kid, I felt like the basic idea was, even then, was like pretty on the nose, but there's so much more underneath it. So I'm gathering you haven't taken the die, but I actually really recommend it. It, it really paid off in a way I wasn't expecting. I recommend it too. I watched quite a few. If memory serves, they start to branch off and there's like different types of aliens. Is that right? Like a different strata. There's like the, the overseers and then the slave labor, like the overseers were kind of hidden amongst the slave labor. So the overseers are almost like that William Harcourt character where it's like, we are the, the ones who really are in charge and we're trying to like basically get back in power. Does that sound about right? More or less. Yeah. They know who they are and they'll often get very arrogant and make it known who they are. Because they have that, that sense of superiority about them, despite the fact that they're almost identical. For some reason, just the fact that they were the ones able to enslave the others made them just evil, evilly superior. They're like the star-bellied sneeches. And I'm going to throw this out there. I know some people might consider it blasphemy, and I'm not saying that he's a better actor, but Gary Graham as Sykes was so much better than uh james khan's version of sykes like i you know not saying that you know the the acting was better or whatever but he was just so much more of a full fledged interesting character whereas i felt that with james khan he was just angry guy and i i saw an interview not really an interview but something discussing an interview with james khan recently where somebody brought the movie up and he was like really people like that movie <laughs> so I think that might have been more more of a paycheck flick for him than anything. Based on the rest of his output, that wouldn't be surprising. But but Gary Graham, yeah, he went all in. And, I mean, besides this and Robot Jocks, there's almost not much work of his to really dig into. But those those are two, two solid ones for me. We know he was in a Renegades as the character Ragnar. That's a, that's a good name. <laughs> you know, I mentioned how... To me, anyway, being kind of an outsider to the TV series, they reminded me a little bit of this Harcourt character. It is interesting that really, as we have said several times, this is so much a buddy cop film. And it's very much a buddy cop film of 1988 when it comes to the bad guy and then the whole idea of him running a drug operation. I mean, I'm thinking... RoboCop 2, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking of so many, I mean, the weapon, of course, comes to mind. I'm thinking of so many other, basically, war on drug films. It's always Mr. Big Business in his secret drug money. Where is his lair, and what kind of drug is he making, and what are the effects? It's always got to be the new designer drug, and that it looks blue and really cool. And then they, they talk about it being detergent. I'm like, oh, it's Tide Pods. He's making Tide Pods. Are so far ahead of their time. No one knew. They were really predicting the future on that one. <laughs> oh, we'll be drinking curdled milk in no time. I pledge allegiance to the flag. You gotta sneak to outside town, this bunch of... The United States of America. And to the Republic for which it's 
billion miles away. Your new classmates learn twice as fast as you. Your new partner gets drunk on sour milk. It's a good week. Welcome to America 1995. Alien Nation premieres Monday. One of the interesting things for me is when they first are in the film and they're in quote unquote slag town. So slag is the derogative term for the newcomers and seeing the way that they're being marketed to, I found interesting. Like where there's a Pepsi billboard and we see one of the newcomers like doing the splits and all happy and like the big newcomer head and everything. And being here in Detroit, it makes me think of how drastically different billboards get as you drive into certain sections of Detroit. And suddenly all of the marketing moves to, and this may sound like a stereotype, but hand to God, this is exactly what happens. You go in and it's like, now here are malt liquor billboards. Now here are cigarette billboards. So just this way that marketing to African Americans is so much different than it is to the communities outside of the prevalent African American communities. I was surprised that it was Pepsi that was being sold to the newcomers. For me, it should have been, they get drunk off of rotten milk. Why don't we go ahead and start marketing? Like, here's a new brand of milk that is already 30 days old or whatever. Like, some sort of thing to say this milk is expired and this is the product that we're selling you. We want to keep you in your place. We want to keep you in Slagtown. I choose chunky style milk because it has the wholesome chunks brewing kids need, unlike smooth style milk. Hey guys, save some chunks for me. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing advertising agencies love, though, it's it's convincing every group that they're the target audience for this thing and trying to sell to the entire world. I think a lot how like like I'm here in Texas. I know, I know it's. Don't rub it in. We get commercials all the time for Dairy Queen, and they are the most, like, Texas-centric thing I've ever seen. And then one day, I went out of my way to look it up, and I'm like, they're from Minnesota. <laughs> but they have been spending my entire life trying to convince us that, that they're, like, the Texas fast food chain, and it's insane. So, yeah, you just you see it everywhere as soon as you start looking for it. It is funny to think that they would push Pepsi. Uh, you have a great point with why weren't they pushing milk? Uh, I guess maybe because uh, looking at it from a adult perspective where, you know, you wouldn't want kids drinking alcohol. And so they wouldn't be pushing, you know, they, they I guess they, if they had big billboards for malt liquor or something, but have big billboards for, for rotten milk for them to drink. And also because salt water is like – acid to them. And you would think that being how not that salt water and Pepsi are the same thing, but it would kind of would would be in a similar vein. You would think that the newcomers wouldn't really be too keen to drink something that is carbonated and fizzy and whatnot, which is a lot like the thing that could kill them. I'm almost shocked that hasn't become some kind of challenge on its own, really. Considering people were lighting themselves on fire uh, as as like a TikTok challenge, uh, curdled milk seems almost tame. Yeah, we, we'd have to find a way to spice it up, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and I feel a little bad in this movie that Terrence Stamp is just fucking incredible, but he's barely in the movie. I wish he was in the, this movie a whole lot more, but I guess that's kind of the role of the drug lord. 
I watched it twice and both times until he was there. I was like, oh yeah, Terrence Stamp is in this. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a bit of a thankless role for a name like that. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that uh, hit the cutting room floor that uh, maybe would have filled things in a little bit better. More Terrence Stamp, for example. Yeah, more Terrence Stamp. I I, mean, I really was glad to see Kevin Major Howard as Rudyard Kipling. That was another thing, too, is I thought that we were going to go for the funny names through the whole thing. But William Harcourt, other than the British politician, I can't think of anybody else named William Harcourt. And then, like... Was there Strander and uh, there there were like the funny names and then there were the non-funny names. And I was like, no, it'd be nice if everybody had a funny name. If everybody got looped in with uh, just a real shit name when they got named at uh, whatever their equivalent of uh, Ellis Island is. Yeah, that was something the show really dug into. They had almost too much fun with that. But, I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, what are the most obscure, weird things you can come up with and then make an audience try to make that connection in their head? Which, that was half the fun of it for me. It was great. It was it was enjoyable to see that. Because, yeah, it was they were having fun with it. And why not? You know, you're going to have a character that's in there for, like, one episode. Give him a goofy name. I was very happy to hear the full story of why and I never knew this, why Sam Francisco is called George. I was very glad uh, you'll hear in the interviews later on, and I'll spoil it here now. I had no idea that he was initially George Jetson, and then they had to change the name. So <laughs> so then, like, as I'm watching it, I'm like, all right, when did they change it? Because they integrate it very well, I, especially there's the scene when – uh, Mandy Patinkin is driving along and he starts singing uh, San Francisco, open your golden gates. And I'm like, well, that's nice that they had that in there. They must have done that as part of the pickups or they must have figured it out that they couldn't use George Jets- Jetson somewhere in the middle of it. But I thought that they integrated that whole George Sam thing pretty well. San Francisco, San Francisco. <laughs> no, I, I ain't buying it. I'm not buying that. I'm not going to introduce you to people as San Francisco. I think I'll call you George. George? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure where where in the process that came along. I just read about that, and I thought, I mean, that would have been hilarious, but almost distracting <laughs> with such an on-the-nose name. But and, and the way that they play it off with its own separate joke of, of Sam turning into George, because there's no way I'm working with somebody named San Francisco. <laughs> Like, at least they managed to get their own extra joke out of it. It felt just genuine. And uh, you you wouldn't know, because, God, that had to be a nightmare. Oh, wait, we can't use this? Uh-oh. Hurry up and think of something else. And then integrate it into the story really well. Integrate it into the thing we already shot. Yeah, I was just re-watching the original Suicide Squad and noticing how some of the actors' hair changes. And I'm like, oh, this must be the reshoots. Okay. Not as bad as the reshoots for a Fantastic Four movie, where the one actress clearly wears a wig through part of it and then clearly isn't wearing a wig through part of it. It's like, this stuff, if they did a lot of reshoots, I couldn't tell. Yeah, we call that samurai copping it. Have you been circumcised? Yeah, I have. Why? Well, your doctor must have cut a big portion of it off. No, he uh, he was a good doctor. Good doctors make mistakes, too. That's why they buy insurance. I like the whole thing of the idea of these four guys being stuck together 
and that Harcourt is the only one who, well, Harcourt pretty much is the money man and manages to murder all of his business partners. I thought that worked pretty well as far as uh, having, you know, a pretty good way to get into the investigation. It's solid and it works, but especially on, on rewatch, the investigation part of it almost felt like the secondary thing to me. Like, I really enjoyed just, you know, the guys, but it, it almost felt like at a certain point the movie was like, oh shit, we're a cop movie, aren't we? <laughs> so, you know, it, and what they do absolutely works. It doesn't feel like it's, it's you know, shoved in there, but they, if they'd have made the movie an extra half hour longer and let it breathe, I wouldn't have complained because yeah, the, the, the interpersonal relationship stuff is, is as fun as it can be. And when the cop movie takes over, there's, it, it feels like it's, it's a bit jarring between the two, but it does work in both aspects. That's the upside. They didn't blow it on either side. I'll say one movie that kind of did a very similar thing, but did it better was The Hidden. Kyle MacLachlan was the alien, but they didn't know he was an alien and they were integrating him into the family and all that. And there was all his quirks and they were getting used to it. And it was kind of a very similar vibe with pretty much every buddy cop movie where, uh, oh, well here, you know, you have the, the, the one cop and let's go meet the family. And so with, uh, with the hidden, I felt they handled that better, even though, uh, it was like the mystery, like you didn't know that he was an alien until later in the film. And in this, you knew he was an alien right away. And, um, the, the twist was that, uh, they were bringing the cop home to meet the alien family instead of, you know, the alien to go meet the human family. It was an interesting spin. And again, you know, I agree with Josh on that, that, uh, they just didn't, let it breathe the mystery of the of the cop portion of the investigation and all that and it it's almost took away from the stuff that was interesting it was that the cop portion was the least interesting thing about this it was like oh yeah there's this mystery we have to solve and we kind of get back to it every once in a while but here are all the interpersonal drama and all the just bizarre nature of everything of having a human and an alien was so much more or human and aliens was so much more interesting but we kept cutting away from that to kind of move the story forward in the hidden it's alien that visits the humans and in this one it's the humans that visit the aliens and i'm thinking of well riggs is kind of an alien when he comes home to the murtaugh house he's got the dead wife and they've got he's got all that baggage and he's clinically insane and coming into this nice hub of as close to normalcy as you can possibly get that family being African American is also a little bit of an outsider as well. So, and you've got here with Sykes, he's also got his family issues. He's got the divorce. He's got the daughter that he wants to go to her wedding, but he's super nervous about it. So I like that difference in the interpersonal relationships with that. And I agree too that I would have loved to have seen much more of Sam and George. And for me, the most interesting thing is, it feels a little too soon, but I do like as Sykes starts to change and starts to defend his partner. So when he has that scene with uh, Peter Jason as the Fetterchuk character, 
and bashes his nose against the steering wheel and throws his keys out into the ocean. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, like it happens a little too quickly, but I do like that there is that change in his character. I wish there, to your guys' point, there had been a little bit more, again, breathing room. So it didn't feel like such a sudden change. Had there been more steps for him to get to that point where he actually cared about his partner. The Briggs similarity is definitely spot on, especially in the TV show. I mean, because in the show, they go right down to stealing the mullet and everything. (laughs) But seeing Peter Jason, that was like a nice surprise because I didn't know he was allowed to be in movies that weren't directed by John Carpenter or Walter Hill. (laughs) Uh, Wasn't he in like the racist bar scene in 48 Hours? So like that kind of, yeah, so it, it almost even gives you that that extra familiarity of like, oh, shit, we know what this guy's going to get into. <laughs> Here's our obligatory scumbag. I'm telling you, I'm giving you all I know. Well, look, Hoss, you start running a respectable business, and I won't have to come in here and hassle you every night. You know what I mean? And I want the rest of you cowboys to know something. There's a new sheriff in town. Hey, can I say, I mean, Brian Thompson was born to play this alien. Like, when he shows up, I'm just like, well, of course it is. Not just that, he plays a, com- he's the only person that's in the show, too, as a completely separate alien. Totally different alien, but he just looks right for that part, so of course they brought him back. <laughs> can I tell you, um, I met him, God, 15 years ago. He is huge. He's, he's as big as you think he is. Well, he has to be. The Terminator stole his clothes. Wash day tomorrow. Nothing clean, right? Although I'm discovering that Arnold is not as big as uh, as we thought he was. There was a picture circulating where uh, from Conan the Destroyer where um, Andre the Giant and um, Will Chamberlain were holding. And I was like, oh, you know, you'd need guys this big that to make Arnold look small. And then it was like, oh, you know, Arnold's like just barely six feet tall and he wears lifts. And I'm like. All right. Dude. I mean, he's, he's taller than Stallone, he's t- so he won that battle. <laughs> well, I'm taller <laughs> than Stallone. That's tough. I've always liked him, and he's always just been right there. And he's and, and super nice. Yeah, he's. I've always yeah. enjoyed him. Really, really cool guy. So, yeah, it was it was nice to, to meet him. and Because and there's always times where you do meet somebody famous, and you're like, oh, I love this guy. And then he's an ass. And you're like, no, don't. Oh, damn it. Why? I should have never met them. What's nice that he's been in so many things and is always so memorable in there. Like, you know, speaking of Stallone, like him being the head of the, what, the hatchet killers or whatever in Cobra or the bodybuilder in Miracle Mile. It's like you remember oh his God, roles in there. Oh, I, love, I love that where he, where he comes out with his boyfriend. He's like, you got a problem with this? And it's like, nope, <laughs> got no problem. Speaking of Cobra, we didn't even talk about how, like, the opening is to this movie is, like, the stereotypical, like, how many cop movies open with, like, s- some kind of job getting pulled at a at a convenience store? <laughs> like, Cobra did, uh, I think Stone Cold did, like, they're just, it's such a common thing, and I never get tired of that. Oh, and I saw the guys walking into the store in those coats. I was just like, kind of warm to be wearing those winter coats, like, from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> And then, of course, the partner having to die. And I did appreciate that Sykes is smart enough that when he sees that opportunity to investigate his partner's death, that he takes it. That he realizes that he's going to have to partner up with this, quote-unquote, slag in order to do it. But he's the one that bites the bullet and says, listen, I'll be this guy's partner and 
then I'll do my own thing. And I appreciate too that he's got his own ends. And then once Sam finds out what's going on with the drug stuff, that then he has his own thing. It gets personal for everybody. And, but yeah, that is, that is one rare thing. It's almost always, you know, an unlikely duo that neither of whom want to work together. So the fact that he was proactive in taking it on, that, that is sort of a rarity. Right. You expect the captain to be like, okay, you know, Sykes, you don't have a partner. Come on aboard. You need to start following the rules like the rest of us. So I'm assigning you a new partner. What? Hell no, I work alone. Not anymore, you don't. Say hi to your new partner, Tricerica. Yeah, Sykes, you're on with the cartoon cat, yeah. (laughs) If you screw this up, you're off the case. I need your badge and your gun on my desk now. You're a loose cannon, Sykes. Now go get with the alien. He's a good cop. He's going to make something of himself. And I did do like that very patronizing thing that Harcourt's doing with like, you know, oh, we're all keeping an eye on you, son. And just like, it's great to have one of us on the force now. We talked a little bit about this before, tying this back to racial politics. Super easy, kind of on the nose. But at the same time, I mean, that's what I like about good sci-fi is that you can just get those messages through a lot easier than like just hammering people over the head with like, hey, be nice to people of color or be nice to people of different religions. Be nice to cartoon cats. You know, you really need to do this. The need for that delicacy has sort of changed over time. I think we're in a place where you can be more in your face about it now. But the way that it evolves to like this and something like I I think about X-Men a lot, how, you know, all the different years and versions of that, you know, it can it could stand for race. It could stand for sexuality. It could stand for so many different things. You know, you can read into it, despite the fact that what's on the page is also very blatant. Bright was kind of the opposite of that. It was like, hey, here's racial politics, you know, just beating you abusively over the head. It's like, okay, we get it. The one line that gets me every single time I think about it is Will Smith talking about his partner being like Shrek. And I'm just like, you have Shrek in this world. This is so strange that you have that pop culture went along the exact same way to the point where you had Shrek. Even though you had ogres and goblins and elves and dragons and all of this stuff. You had all of that, but you still... That's your light entertainment. In that world, it's it's a movie. It's pro-ogre propaganda to, to make them feel better about themselves. They're like onions. They've got a lot of layers. A lot of layers. <laughs> but it also, it's to teach them to let others into their swamp. It's a shame, because I, I actually like... I think David Ayer is, is a good director. He just keeps kind of getting hosed one way or another. Either the studio will take the property away from him like they did with Suicide Squad... Or uh, in this, I felt it was more, maybe they were more beholden to Max Landis's meh, writing. Yeah, and Landis was already on his way out, so I was surprised that it came out when it did. I think it's because they already put so much money into it, and it was going to be the, the big you know Netflix movie. And they were like, all right, well, you know, we're going to release it anyway. And, well, hell, if they're, if they're going to release Cuties, why wouldn't they release Bright? Yeah, he's definitely one of those directors who it feels like just isn't... When he's on, he's on, but when he doesn't catch a break, it's obvious because you get Suicide Squad or I think it was Sabotage, that Arnold movie he did. That one didn't... That one felt refilmed as well, and I believe it was. Yeah, that kind of got pulled away from him. 
kind of we're going way off the topic here, but that's kind of why I'm really hoping for uh, the air cut of the Suicide Squad. I really want to see what his version is because you know he needs that vindication because if people are like because all the people that that crapped all over the movie that and especially now that the the James Gunn version's out and people are like oh this is so much better than the other one and it would be interesting to see if that comes out and it's like legit good and then it could be like well why didn't warner brothers just have faith in this guy to begin with why did they go back and recut it into a music video now i enjoyed it for what it was but i could tell that it was cut to ribbons I was very happy with some of the music drops that happen in this movie. The uh, Scary Monsters, David Bowie track, that was nice for that to be there. And then, of course, the Sympathy for the Devil cover by Jane's Addiction. I was very glad when that happens. The Cassandra character, the main squeeze of one of the bad guys who gets off pretty early in the film, she's interesting, and I wish she had had more because she really is set up to be a femme fatale and one of those femme fatales who realizes, oh, wait, I need to have a change of heart and I need to help out these cops. Because she's very much, she kind of reminds me of um, the woman with the snake from Blade Runner. She reminds me of that a little bit, using her sexuality, trying to, to seduce one of the cops. And then, of course, her being very bad. Well, of course, that character in Blade Runner doesn't really get a chance at redemption. And Cassandra kind of does when she learns that Harcourt had her squeeze killed, but I wish there there had been more for her and that we had seen her and maybe she was more bad, I suppose, and actively screwing over uh, Sam and Sykes and then had that change of heart once she found out the truth. But she, again, kind of felt a little bit like a wasted character. Yeah, I think her whole appearance is another one of those kind of odd tonal shifts because only pretty much when she shows up does it feel like we're slipping into noir for a moment. That character, she feels like she almost came out of a different movie, except that she could only be in this movie. <laughs> but the way that she's portrayed, it, it feels so different. It feels so out of place. And I, and I wonder if that's just because of, like, like I said, you know, they, they cut the movie straight to 90 minutes. I wonder if, if we lost things just to get in, out, and done with it like studios often want to do because there could have been so much more to do with her and it and it just it just felt like they dropped her in and then picked her back up in a movie where there's so much world building that they need to do they really rushed through the world building and they didn't give a lot of the characters time to breathe, which is why I feel that there there has to be a longer cut. Like it, it ninety minutes for for this much story, you know, introducing all of these aliens to Earth, and now they've integrated into our society and all. And for them to just squeeze all of that, including the plot, into this really tight, neat ninety minutes, it rushes by. It it needed to to be a little bit longer. Even even another fifteen minutes would have just had a little bit more time to breathe would have introduced the characters would have had somebody like Cassandra where it would have made a little bit more sense what her character was going through going back to the producers they wanted a buddy cop film buddy cop film 90 minutes long here's this here's this put them together cartoon cat and uh all right yeah go you know 90 minutes make it happen more times you can show it during the uh during the day in the theater because even that revision this famously was rewritten by James Cameron and even that revision that he turned in was 123 pages. So we're talking, you know, a couple minutes over two hours. Cameron knows for a lot of things, but brevity's not one of them. But it 
kind of makes sense that there was a lot more stuff here before we ended up chopping it all out. And one funny thing that I kind of wish that they had stuck with since this was a Galen Heard production and, and Cameron did this uncredited rewrite was when they're setting up that world and showing this is 1991. It's a little ironic because they show a marquee that has Rocky five on it. And then in his draft of it, it's actually Terminator three kind of like setting it in the distant future, much more distant than 91 since I can't remember, was it 90 or 91 when Terminator 2 came out? So Yeah, it was 91, 91 on that, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it would have been much more in line with Terminator 2, but he put Terminator 3 in the script, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, that's another joke they could have but didn't quite beat to death in the show. Like, there's, there's a couple different moments where somebody will just be like, oh, we just got out of Back to the Future 5 and stuff like that. I mean, I, mean, I guess that's such an easy joke to make, so I wouldn't, you know... <laughs> And really, Rocky Five did come out in 1990, so... It- I mean, we don't talk about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Although, man, if we're talking about movies where I'd like to see the original cut, there we go. <laughs> I haven't seen that since 1990, so I can't even begin to speak to it. Yeah, word on the street is that there's a work print that is much better, but we'll see. A friend of mine who directed a documentary about uh, John G. Avildsen, who was the the director of Rocky and subsequently Rocky Five, and he actually talks about it in the documentary about how he got called back by Stallone because Rocky Five was supposed to be the end, and he was like, you know, you directed the first one, I want you to direct the last one, and how his was like a lot different and it went through a lot of studio uh, nonsense. There was a lot of rewriting. There was a lot of changing of the tone uh, made it a little bit more slapdash and silly. Whereas it was originally not dark, but darker than the product that we got. Um, you ever have a chance to watch it? Um, King of the underdogs. It's all about uh, John G. Avildsen who did karate kid. He did Rocky, did a lot of really great movies. It's a, it's a really good documentary. And like I said, he talks about the series and then talks about uh, Rocky five and what we should have gotten, but probably never will. That's like my drug of choice though, is, you know, all these different behind the scenes movie documentaries. I will watch any of them, even if I don't care about what they're about. So if I care about what it's about, that's like a bonus. Well, even with bad movies, it makes them so much richer. Like I'm thinking of the, um, uh, Island of Dr. Moreau one where it's just like, okay, I knew some weird shit was going on, but I had no idea it was this weird. Now, bad movie stories are always more fun than the good ones <laughs> or uh best worst movie about a uh, troll too. Oh, that was just, uh, oh, painfully funny. Like, it was so good. Can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. One of my favorite quotes ever is just when one of the, the just somebody, somebody at a Q&A asked the director something very, like, plot hole based. And his response is just, you don't understand nothing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is the way to deal with it. <laughs> you don't understand it. I know everybody loves the you can't piss on hospitality. But my, my favorite line is the they're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. Oh, my God. Oh, in, in tears every time I see that. Yeah, I like to do like forensic stuff when it comes to scripts, too. And I, I wanted to point out that you're fine up until about page 106. And then suddenly we go from a nice 
typewritten script, which we're all used to, to old computer printout. So it's like, okay, at some point, we definitely changed here. Of course, it's still George Jetson in the script and all that. But yeah, it's interesting. It's right around... Right around the time that George is in the methane room and smashing up all the drugs. And that's pretty much when the movie kicks into high gear, when he gives his fuck procedure line. And then it's just, boom, that movie kicks into overdrive. My wife last night was like, I forgot how fast this moves. Yeah, I rewatching it again today, I was like, wait, wait a minute, like, they're already like almost done. <laughs> like, that's, that's it. Put them together. They don't get along. Then they get along. They have the one night where they get drunk. And then, like, they kick ass. That's it. <laughs> when he saves his life, too, which is nice. That whole idea of the car bomb. That- mm-hmm. Oh, and that's hysterical. <laughs> the way he just, he just pops up in the backseat like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that enough can be said about how good Mandy Patinkin honestly is in this. For Like, he's – especially since, like, it's not a secret that in real life apparently – uh, he can be very difficult when he wants to be. He's so good at playing, like, gentle and, and likable. Like, I, you know, I loved him on the show Dead Like Me because he was such a, like, a wonderful fatherly figure on that show. And uh, there's some of the similar uh, feel to that character here, just a little bit more alien. And he's just, he's so good. <laughs> I can never say anything bad about him, but I've also never had to get in a fight with him on set. One thing you you had mentioned, uh, Mike, that you know, it was slightly into the future, but I think that was one of the things that made it more interesting. It wasn't that they pushed it, uh, you know, the year 2030 or something, all this happened. It was like, this is happening now. And so they were able to use a lot of just, you know, they didn't have to get different cars. They didn't have to really do anything to the buildings. They, you know, everything was just, they could film it wherever on sets or locally. And they just had to kind of update some of the stuff. They added billboards with the newcomer language. They added television with the newcomer language and that, you know, subtitles and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't like they had to really go out of their way to, to add an additional production to that, which I wonder if that was done intently to save money or if they wanted to do something where it was like, no, this is what the world would be like if now this happened. And it it was an interesting way of them to kind of do it. And I still think that it felt good because then you go back and you watch it and you don't laugh at them being, oh, well, you know, it's the year 1991 and, and they didn't have this yet. Well, it was like everything that was going there was pretty much stuff that was out at the time. So it wasn't like so far into the future that it was ridiculous. And they didn't really have a whole lot of new technology. Since this was kind of a slave race, it wasn't like they came in and they had, I don't know, fancy new iPads or something that would separate them and separate their technology. It was like, no, these are workers and they have what they have on their backs and that's about it. I did find it very ironic that at the beginning of the film that it is Ronald Reagan on TV, you know, reusing and repurposing footage of him like, hey, we gotta welcome these people here. I had the same thought. (laughs) Yeah, right? I'm like, that (laughs) doesn't sound like the Reagan I know. If there's just a bastion of of warmth and welcoming. It's it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, and of course I'm thinking they're sending the worst people. They're sending rapists. <laughs> God. Oh, I can't even imagine if this took place to 
Right? Oh, Jesus. There are caravans of aliens that are at our border. With the the climate today, I am astonished that nobody is optioned for this to be remade yet. It's such a hot-button topic. It seems like somebody would have just said, okay, get you'll get this into production immediately. We need to have this out the door, like, right now. But, you know, I mean, maybe last year kind of had something to do with it because Hollywood – Hollywood had to kind of take a year off and, uh, well, uh, I think we're, we're, just, you know, we may never quite fully recover from it, you know, which, and my, you know, getting off topic again, but I do think that it might be a good thing because, uh, as Spielberg had said a while ago, movie budgets were getting out of control and they were due for a crash. So if they can start making some smaller movies again, I'd be, you know, we don't need a $500 million movie every other week. We can have some smaller, well-written movies that don't cost a ton of money. I'd, I'd kind of like that, actually. Had it been handled well, Bright could have been this version of Alien Nation. That could have been the one that would have just hit right at the right time, would have talked about the xenophobia, would have talked about this idea of otherness. But it was just handled so poorly that it's now a footnote to th- even think about it. The last I heard was that they were going ahead and they were going to make a bright sequel. And then uh, the the Max Landis stuff kind of happened. And it, it but it's like, just get somebody else to write it. You know, it's it's not beholden to him. You could have somebody who would probably do a better job with the material, because I think the the kernel of the idea is there. I think that maybe they could do something better with it. Uh, it might be a chance of where they, they kind of reboot it after one movie. I would, I'd be fine with that. Well, again, they did it with suicide squad rebooted after one movie. All right. We're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from director Graham Baker. After that, we'll hear from screenwriter, rock Neil Bannon. And last but not least, you'll hear from Peter Jason. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate. And there just have too many levers and buttons. There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon, 
that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The viewer's guide to genre television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from Alien Nation director Graham Baker. I had heard that you got into filmmaking via commercials. Is that correct? Absolutely. It was a great time in the 60s and in England. Advertising was the growth industry, as it were. And I'd been at art school and so on. And I went into advertising as an art director. And then very, very quickly, television became the medium that was taking over advertising. So I was around and I became a producer inside an advertising agency. And after a time, it became evident that the more and more commercials were being made. The only directors were either feature directors who were slumming it for the money or stills photographers. And that was about it. And so suddenly there became this, we advertising guys spoke advertising language, as it were, and we needed people that understood what we were trying to do, etc. One by one, we became directors. We were offered the job of a director. The production companies realized they needed more directors. People from inside the agencies were very valuable. However, that went alongside other people like Ridley Scott, who worked in television, and one or two other photographers and stuff. And what happened was, very, very quickly, we became stars. It was really quite extraordinary. Um, English advertising became extremely creative in the, 50, in the 70s. And, you know, every film festival, be it Cannes or Venice or whatever, at the end of the week, there would be a little mini festival for commercials. We were winning a lot of, lot of awards, a lot of awards. And I did very well after that. So we became, we became stars, as it were. And then, of course, I don't know whether you know about the Edie Fund, but it became, Mr. John Edie was a man who worked for Maggie Thatcher in the 70s, recommended that there should be a tax break on foreign films being made in, in England, in the UK. So all the studios had Fox. I made my first film for Fox was the, the third the third Omen picture. And that was under the, the... We were, again, we were in the right place at the right time, as it were. We were very lucky. But yes, so Ridley Scott, 
Tony Scott, Adrian Lyon, Alan Parker, myself, Hugh Hudson were really, you know, we all made our first pictures in that period. The advertising from England was the gold standard and just would clean up at the Clio's every single year for so many years. I, I won several Clio's, yeah. Yeah, no, it was terrific. And, uh, and of course, we were filming all over the, all over the place as well, and in the States as well. But uh, it was really the first film I made in 74. I wrote and directed and I made it. I had a country home up in Norfolk. And I made this sort of period picture set in 1914, 30 minutes short on 16mm, using my guys, my crew and stuff. I had a little campus around the house, you know, a couple of caravans, all local talent, all amateur talent apart from two, two professionals. And it won the short film award in 75 at Chicago. The BBC then used it and put it on, broadcast it. And then that really, that really took me off. And then, the very you know about David Putnam, of course, Lord Putnam, who ran Columbia for a time. Um, he was a great fan, and he be in contact with Fox, and then that's the way I got to make uh, uh, you know the Third Omen. Which came first, the Third Omen or the Joe Isuzu campaign? Oh, uh, Isuzu would be later. What happened was I went over, came over to went over to the states, obviously back and forth with dealing with Fox and so on. Struck up a contract with a. Uh, a company in New York to make commercials. I mean, there was a demand, so I was there, as it were. And around about that period, like the chronology, you understand, will be slightly vague for me. It's 30 years ago. Basically, what was happening was that I was doing commercials, a lot of commercials in the States. I was flying between London and New York or Los Angeles all the time, perpetually, throughout that period, late 70, well, 70, let's see, 79, and through 79, 78, 79, 80. So from 80 on, really, I was spending big time in, in the States. How was that coming into a franchise like The Omen that had already had two chapters and then directing the third? Quite interesting, but I, I viewed it as a, a different picture entirely. Obviously, we inherited Damien, but the screenplay was by Andrew Birkin under the auspices of Harvey Bernhardt, this very co- colorful producer, <laughs> great character. And so I got brought in and was given Andrew's screenplay, which I like very much. I thought it was extremely intelligent and we inherited certain things that slightly as a director, I was slightly suspect, but, you know, sort of pieces that perhaps I felt were probably a little bit too hokey, but there we go. That comes with the, uh, the style of the, the, the genre of the picture. Generally speaking, it was, a, it was a very good experience. I really enjoyed it. And working with Fox are very, very supportive Richard Berger, who's running the Los Angeles end. Tim Hampton is the local producer in, in London and stuff. And uh, it, was, it was a very good experience. I enjoyed it. How did you end up directing Impulse? Basically, I was approached by a man called Tim Zinnerman, son of Fred, who was married to Meg Tilly at that stage. Tim was a fairly experienced, very experienced line producer. He'd made several pictures and was a very good guy, a great friend. The original screenplay was by Nick Kazan, I like Kazan's son, and it was a real kind of bloodfest, really. I mean, it was like sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, slightly more occult. I looked at it and I talked to uh, to the people. It was, um, I don't remember what name of the company was. It was uh, anyway. They had a they had a film section which Brandon Stoddart was running with ABC. Sorry, ABC. It was made under their auspices. I 
kind of said that I wasn't really very, well, I said I didn't really think the screenplay was good enough. Then they set a writer, Don Dunaway, who had done some work. And I met with Don, we got on very well. We met in Rome for a week and kicked it around for a little bit and came up with, I think, a much, much, well, obviously a much better script. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I'm very, very, very pleased with, with, with Impulse. I think it, it's the film that I felt that I really, I really did make that film. I think I would have liked to have had a slightly stronger denouement, but it's, nevertheless, it's, it's very, there's a big question mark at the end of it. It's also become, I understand, you know, quite a little cult movie now, which is very pleasing. And how did you end up on Alien Nation? What was the genesis of that for you? I had met Gail and Heard and Jim Cameron socially. I mean, I knew them socially way before any of this really happened. Not way before, but a short time before we got to grips on alienation. As I understand it, Rockney O'Bannon and his producer, Rich Kapritz, had approached, I thought they'd approached Fox. I was never quite sure about this, but might have been it went to Pacific Western, which was Gail and Heard's company. Either way, it fell into her hands, their hands, the Camerons. The Camerons are obviously hot with the Fox because of Terminator and so on. I think Richard Cabritz gave me the impression, anyway, that when they took it to Fox, that it would be, or at least when Pacific Western got involved, that it would be directed by Jim. It would be a Jim Cameron movie. That's, as I understood it earlier, obviously that would be the, the intent behind their taking it in the first place. Jim, however, was committed, I think, emotionally to making Abyss. It's, a, it's something that he had much earlier, and it's something he worked on, uh, and... Gail was supporting him. They were married, of course, in the 90s. He was really committed to Abyss. What happened, I don't, I'm not quite sure what happened there, but whether it was a giving Gail something to run with, she became the producer of the picture, and she asked me whether I wanted to direct it. And I said, I looked at the screenplay, and it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Rodney O'Banna, wonderful idea, riff on, on aliens, riff on race, of course. It was just quite brilliant. The ending was quite a different ending. I'll get around to that in a moment. Anyway, so we began work on it. Almost as I said yes, I was then told that James Cameron was going to rewrite the screenplay. Now, whether that was a way in which Fox or Gale or whoever felt that it would still be a Cameron movie, as it were, even though he wasn't was directing it, I don't know. Shrugged. Fine. Jim, I mean, you know, I, I didn't think... He writes his own movies. He's a, he's a writer, director of his own movies. So it would obviously be a Jim Cameron picture, as it were. Now that slight, I looked askance with that, but anyway, I thought, well, okay, I'll go with it. Well, Jim was quite obviously schizophrenic in his, his approach to, to, to the screenplay. He, what, because he was working on Abyss and that which was his passion, quite rightly. So here was I in West Hollywood. My, every every second day, a page or two of the screenplay would float down from Mulholland, you know, where Jim, <laughs> Jim in, was sitting in state, as it were. Meanwhile, we were in pre-production, which is the worst disaster, I'm sure you've heard this a million times before, you know, directors or productions that were running and, and the screenplay wasn't really finished and so on. And as an adjunct to that, we'll get to a couple of points in a moment, but um, so it was already problematic, like that, really. But anyway, we were we were pushing through. One of the things that was an immediate outcome of this was that uh, the big saga of whether or not it was Mr. Jetson, Man of the Future, or whatever, which is you know apparently 
Mandy Patink, who was very upset about. The reason for that was, of course, that Fox suddenly, Gail and Heard or Fox, the executive shop, simply hadn't checked with Hanna-Barbera that, you know, for the for permission. And I think they just went ahead, and then Hanna-Barbera might have given them permission. I don't, I'm not quite sure. But what happened was that they suddenly realized, Hanna-Barbera, they were going to have a rerun of the, the Jetsons. So, no, they pulled it and said, no, you can't use the, his name in the screenplay. Well, we had already shot scenes where Jimmy Carr was talking to Mandy, calling him um, the man of the future. So, what's his first name? Uh, George. George, that's right. So, so he's, hey, George, George, George. And then, so we had to, fortunately, we had, we had yet to film the scene where Mandy and, and Sykes first meet, in which they introduce one another to, to each other. So we were able to cobble that so that he said, you know, my name's Francisco, and he said, I'm, my name is Samuel. And, and, and James said, no, beautifully timed. He comes through double doors. And he said, no, he said, no way. There is no way I'm going to introduce you to San Francisco. Nice line. No, I, I'm going to call you George, okay? So that, you know, cleared that. <laughs> but we had, as I, as I say, we'd already shot considerable, two quite considerable scenes by that time. So we, we got through there. But it was, again, it was a, a piece of uh, really incompetent production, in my view, you know, pre-production from the, the executive wing or Gail. I don't know who was responsible for that, but we, it should have been cleared. That is a good save, though. You pulled it out pretty good. <laughs> Indeed. Casting was, of course, hugely important in that version. It was important, but there were lots of things that were contentious about that. I had felt, I'm not quite sure whether Mandy had already been cast, but anyway, we, was, we were casting the, the Matt Sykes role as well, obviously, simultaneously. But I, they wanted Brian Dennehy to play, when I say they, the executive wing of Fox, I think Gail. They put forward Brian on. First of all, he's a brilliant actor, wonderful. I would have enjoyed working with him and so on. But he kind of didn't bring, he wasn't sexy in a way, he wasn't sharp. I mean, I, I'd seen, I, oh, I think by that time, Mandy was almost set. And Mandy is a theatrical, you know, obviously theatrical background as, a, as an actor, very academic in his approach to acting. And I felt, since he played the role of a somewhat naive, staid, alien, upright character, I want some street sense, some smart, you know, some sort of probably slightly suspect guy to play the partner, to contrast him, who breaks the rules and does things is very unorthodox in many ways. And it just, and I suddenly thought, James Kahn, it's got to be James Kahn. James had sort of gone through a period of almost isolation since 82, his Sister had been killed or something in a car accident, and I think he was doing pretty doing a lot of coke. But anyway, he sort of withdrew, and then of course Coppola got him to make Gardens of Stone, which was not a success. Even though I thought Khan was pretty damn good at it, but that didn't help him. There were two other issues there. One was that he later complained about it. He complained a lot, James. I'll get back to me. But he said, you know, they really can kick you when you're down. He's on record as saying that because the studio made him pay his own insurance, basically. He was being fined. He was being fined, basically. And that went very much against the grain for him. It was very depressing for him. I, having seen the picture I, I, and heard that he had had a problem, I obviously I watched the picture uh, wanting to cast him. 
I got a hold of Mike Levy, who was the producer of that, and I'd known Mike for some time anyway. And he said, no, he said James was, was, he was okay. Jimmy was okay. He really was okay. He really stuck by him. So he was lying, actually. I was, was misrepresenting the truth. Let's put it that way. But nevertheless, he was, you know, he's backing Jimmy up, and I know him. I was still getting opposition from Gail and the studio about this casting, casting James. So eventually I went to, Len Goldberg was running Fox then, and I went to see Len, and he said, okay, let, leave him with me, I'll, uh, and he had lunch with Jimmy. He knew, obviously, across paths in the park, and he called me the next day and said, listen, fine, he's fine, he's giving me his, his word that we work hard, etc., and I'll back you in casting it. So we, I got James Carr. He, he would never know how far I went down the line to get him to do the role. And treated me, you know, in a way that we'll get round to in a moment very badly. And I'm never forgiven for it. But anyway, he got to the role of uh, of sight. He was still, and even though he's supposed to be clean, he was not. He was doing. I, I said to Mike, <coughs> Mike Lieber, he seemed to be okay. He wasn't. His nose wasn't bumped up when he. And Mike said, "Well, no, that later he said, no, that's because he was freebasing." <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it was not very conducive to uh, to a sort of happy uh, shoot. As it happened, he gave me everything that I wanted. There were only one or two occasions where, one particular occasion, on a night shoot, where he was absolutely legless. And it, it was a very complicated. It had to run down this uh, metal you know, sort of staircase, as it were. And he could hardly move. But I covered for it. I mean, I... I managed to structure the scenes in a way that when he was not at his best, let's put it, it doesn't show. And I don't think I I would recognize maybe a couple of scenes in, in the picture as it, as it finished, as it was finished. But I don't think anybody else really noticed it, you know, when he was uh, obviously not at his best, let's put it that way. Very difficult for Jimmy. Mandy Patinkin, you know, so say a thorough academic actor, academic training, he had to have four hours in the chair in the makeup chair every day that he was shooting. Now, that is quite a strain. And so what happened when he was not happy on occasions with the way a scene, in his view, had gone, he would ask whether he could, you know, reshoot it or, you know. And I, again, cut him a lot of slack. I, I one, On one particular occasion, we had a you know, quite a complicated um, interior scene with several, several actors involved, dialogue and so and we'd wrapped, we'd wrapped the, the scene and we were on somewhere else. And Mandy came storming through, shouting at me, this grey, grey. He said, we've got to reshoot it. I can't, you know, we've got to reshoot that scene. And I said, Mandy, this is a picture. You know, this isn't stage. This is a picture of all these people. And I was trying to explain that, you know, we're on a budget. We are on a certain budget. And once having done that, you really can't redo it. But any, he almost got on his knees, and I, 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 I looked at the assistant. I, anyway, I reshot it, and or I should reshot, managed to cover, get some coverage for his his particular angles that would suffice. Anyway, but that was the emotional problem I had with Mandy, in as much as you know, he felt that he was being plastered, you know, for four hours, and he felt that I owed him that. Anyway, now while he's doing this. James Kahn is in his caravan waiting. Now, he's, he's, he's on, a, on an edge, Jim. I mean, you know, that's, that's the way he works. He works off, off his own energy and stuff. And uh, to have him bolted down <laughs> waiting for Mandy, 
potato head, he called him, Jimmy responding on potato. Oh, potato head. <laughs> that was Jimmy's phrase. So that was difficult for James Kahn. And I understood that too. I understood that he was very frustrated having to hang around playing rather badly in his caravan every now and then on a keyboard. We'd hear the strains of the theme of um, Godfather coming out, which Jimmy was playing very badly. <laughs> so I'm a piano player myself, a jazz piano player. So I, 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 I know what's good and what bad. <laughs> so really, that was cause for some concern, that sort of, not exactly a friction, but the contrast of styles and and, uh, and as, a, it, uh, as a matter of fact, it was probably even worse for Terence Stamp because Terence, you know, who's mainly, I mean, much of his fame is based on his good looks and so on, uh, to sit in a chair and watch the reason of his fame being plastered with the stuff for four hours, it must have been devastating for him. So again, I was aware of that. I tried to, you know, make ameliorate uh, the situation for him. It's complicated. You initially read the Rockne O'Bannon script and loved it. When Cameron did his rewrite, what did you think about that? It trivialized it. I would be hard-pressed to actually underline, go through the script and say, you know, this is what Jim wrote, this is what Rockne wrote. The main issue I had was the ending. Well, halfway through. Started halfway through. <laughs> but basically, Rockne wrote this absolutely brilliantly. Rodney had, he made the aliens particularly susceptible to, to Stevie Nicks' voice. And for some reason, it had a resonance for them, and they just loved, loved Stevie Nicks. The denouement, the whole picture, the whole picture takes place at the Hollywood Bowl at the Stevie Nicks concert, which is going to be the big drug hit. So it all builds to this thing in, in the amphitheater, in the back, the amphitheater. Brilliant, very funny, because it was obviously tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> and I just thought it was brilliant. But what happened was it ended up being a Jim Cameron escalating into this kind of chase at the end and the water and so on. It just was like a man in a suit. It was just it diminished, somehow diminished the, the, the scale, the, the scope and the scale of the picture. It diminished it and made it just another chase ending. Obviously, I shot it as... But and I can shoot the action. I love action, but it has to have a, for me, it has to have a, a real reason. It has to develop and have a payoff. But anyway, so that was it. Now, what happened was, really, I mentioned that halfway through the business, because what I've done, I did it on Impulse and also on Alienation. I, I was there in LA basically for in the first weekend of all the release of this. <laughs> Going to previews when you're in post production or you're leading up to, re to the release and stuff, that's one thing. But there's nothing I can't I recommend to any director to go along. I stand in line, I stood in line outside on the street with the people, paid by money, sat in the theatre. There's no experience to match that for a director. You're with them, you sense, you can get a sense of where they are and stuff. And the excitement, palpable. And you sit there, very exciting. And the first, in, with Alienation, I was very, very proud of the first. What we opening is, 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 is really great. But it goes on the first half hour, wonderful. And it was my picture. After that, after 40 minutes, I just gradually felt in the cinema, in the theatre, I felt this falling away of, of interest or commitment or involvement on the part of the on the part of the audience, and I knew I, you can feel it. It's palpable. 
I knew it would be that way because I'd seen a picture many times then, but to actually experience it was uh, quite an interesting thing. So that merely told me what I already knew, uh, really, that the picture had fallen away. Now, that was a, a real screening, not a preview screening? I did that on all those three. I went to the theatre on the first night or the first weekend for a screening with the people. There was no preview. Previews are often free for people. You know, they're given, so they go along and they and they fill in for it. So I don't believe that's a trick. The only way you can tell is the box office. You know, is it making money? Other people going back to see it a second time? All those things. And so when you really get that feeling as a director, these are the people you're making the film for. You know, you have to know, by the way, this is also in assessing the screenplay. It's very important. I want to know where the person that's sitting in row G, seat 14, is any point in this picture. Hitchcock said, you know, basically, you know, um, a confused audience is a lost audience. You know, basically, you can't do that. You, you can mystify them and draw them. That's the whole point. You're manipulating an audience. But you must know where they are at any given time. You should be able to estimate that. So we have to go, you know, shock, hey, got him. <laughs> what was it that was confounding audiences, or what was it that was losing them at around half hour, 40 minutes? They were thinking, okay, so what? I mean, it became just a, another chase sequence. Well, okay, chase, person A is after person B, and we've got lots of things that we've seen. We've all seen the same thing. Is it a good car chase? Oh, that was a better car chase than that car. It's a car chase. And... I was very happy with the way I shot, managed to choreograph the, the end of the car chase, where, which is where the Sykes' character goes down a block bridge. We found, I found this marvelous bridge, this ferry bridge down in, in LA and uh, down the port there. And, you know, he stands there and he's, and he cracks his tube and takes overdoses, ODs on, on the drug and stuff and it, it collapses and stuff. All that worked very well. It's fine. But then what happens is he turns into this, uh, this, this wild beast, that's what it is, basically. And that was what was so corny about the whole thing. He, suddenly, he's a stuntman. There's no longer Terrence Stamp. You can see he's a stuntman in his rubber suit. That's not my, that's not my film, <laughs> but unfortunately it is. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's basically where it went wrong. The reason for that, a lot of that, and this is nitty-gritty, I suppose, is that on the wrap, after the, the picture was wrapped and stuff, I was... I had to go back to, to England a couple of times for sure. But I delivered my cut, which I think was you know, pretty pretty good, and it seemed to be pretty good. While I was away, or I was traveling back and forth, the picture was taken out of my hands. It's something that I've thought about over the years, and it's something I could have thought. I could have gone back to the Guild maybe and said, look, uh, this is contrary to my, you know, my rights as a director. But it was effectively Gale. Gale and Bird effectively took the film away and recut it, or not severely recut it, but certainly re-edited. She didn't do it. By this time, Abyss was in pre-production and production down in South Carolina in the tank. Oh, no, that's right. The marriage, her marriage with Jim was practically over, but she was still producing for him and stuff. But nevertheless, she was, she was committed to that. And so she had this character, this person, you know, is a, I don't know, one really producer or whatever. But anyway, she gave him his, her proxy, and he was he was recutting a little bit here, supervised some additional material, 
which is something that I could have taken to task about. It was directed by Connie Panasara, who was my stuntman that he was asked to, to, to direct or supervise some additional material, which was crap. It looked awful. They were clumsily done, and it wasn't anywhere near up to the standard I would have, I would have insisted on. So that was that. Then she threw out Jerry Goldsmith's score. She threw out Jerry Goldsmith's score. See, I think the thing is that Gail was quite powerful in a way because the Fox were looking for Abyss. They're going to look at a, the next Terminator, as it were. So as, as Jim's producer and so on, and she also had you know, alienation on the side and stuff, gave a certain manipulative uh, advantage. Let's put it that way. So she threw Goldsmith's score up. Jerry Goldsmith had done, I worked very well. I'm very fond of Jerry. We got on superbly. We got on all together. The chase scene in uh, Alien, sort of in um, Moment 3, is one of the best things I've ever seen. I think he just, he understood visual. He understood, he understood pace. He understood landscape. He, he was just a very, very brilliant, brilliant, brilliant composer. What he'd written was not orchestral. It was an orchestral. It was an orchestral score, but it was done on the sample. It was electronic music, but it came across as big, big, and big music makes the screen bigger, and it certainly underpins performance more than one could possibly imagine. The first first film I made, very first film, Leaving Lily, was based entirely on a piece of music. The suggestion of the narrative was suggested by the music, and my father's experience in the First War was part of it as well. But nevertheless, the music itself, when I assembled the film, actually, the stretches of it, here and there, I used part of this symphony by a man called Ernest Moiran, composed in 30-something. 30, 30 but I could have sections of it, which I laid on the film. You almost didn't have to re-edit the film. It was almost as if it followed flowed from the music. Music, always very important to me. So, as I said, Terrific, terrific score. I was so delighted to be working with him on, on this, to have him on uh, Alienation and, and his music. You know. Anyway, that's gone. Gail had got something called Kurt Sobel, I think his name is. I, I think he's done several films, but basically it was a sort of small pop group. Funny enough, I made a note somewhere. Jerry had had the same experience of a picture that he wrote for Ridley, one of Ridley's pictures. I can't remember which one it was. Anyway, which was eventually rescored with Tangerine Green. Tangerine, inconsequential, unsubstantial, trivial, banal, nothing, no dramatic content at all. It doesn't help the film at all. And uh, that was the same with uh, the Daily Nation. I'm afraid the track is rubbish. What it is doesn't enhance the film. It doesn't help it. And, uh, you know, again, my heart sank when you, you get a chase sequence or something that could have been really beautifully underscored and it's sort of, some twangy guitar or no thematic quality to it and or even rhythmic quality to it. And I was very deeply disappointed. And I think that was a something that contributed in a very negative way to uh, make was a negative in terms of uh, the picture. Going back to Mandy Patinkin, he's gotten a little bit of reputation over the years as being difficult. Do you think that's fair or do you think that that's just people not understanding how to work with him? He was working at a terrific disadvantage because he, you know, this, this physical restraint that he had on him. Also, he had a body thing as well. He even had brothers. I could see him, yes, 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 he, he, he could be awkward, I think. I could see him being awkward. But as I, said, I cut him slack because of that. But yes, he, he had at one stage, oh, yes, I must say, 
at one stage he came in and he was um, on, 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 a, on a wide shot, you know, establishing shot in a, in a room or whatever. And uh, there were three or four other actors and angles and stuff to cover. But nevertheless, he came in and he'd be looking around like this. And he didn't go off and, after the master shot, he'd go off and go somewhere different for that line there that he'd done here. So I had to say, had to give him a little lecture on, on, on the set. I took him once, I said, shall I imagine, look at the set here, and don't, don't think of stage. Yes, think of stage and think of, there's the auditorium across here. So all those people, all those faces that you're looking at, they all get sucked into this tiny globe, and that's the camera. So remember, when you're playing, you're playing not to the camera, but the camera is the audience, okay? Try to make it, you know, so that he, he and so I said, if you walk over there, that means you've got to come back and do it again to come here. I can't shoot all that because the audience are, you know. So we had to do that. And God bless him, he did sort of get there. Now, Jimmy Kahn, a consummate film actor, he knew exactly where the camera was. He, I think Jimmy, he would even probably know what the lens was. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure he I have actors. I remember, I can't remember which one it was. I remember an actor saying, hey, Gray, what lens you got on there? 40 millimeter. Oh, okay. You know, computing already, whether he knows how, how big his head's going to be at this distance. And that's that screen acting that's best. Well, not that it's best, but you're technically interesting. Uh, so, so Jimmy knew that. I mean, he knew, he knew the camera did like him. It was a good decision. But, but as I say, he knew exactly where the camera was and, and what he was seeing. But Mandy didn't. <laughs> Mandy didn't. But difficult? No. I think uh, at one stage he wanted to, he said, rang me up. I think it was Christmas. I think Christmas or something. I intervened in, in the schedule or whatever. And he said, I've got an idea. I think in the end scene, I sing a cappella because he was then becoming a singer. He loved the idea of being a singer. A musical, bloody good voice too. But the idea of him bursting into song at the end of the wedding sequence would have been too uh, hilarious. I think. Anyway, but I kind of can't okay. But, but uh, difficult? No, I, I, he wasn't difficult. But uh, as I say, I keep on repeating myself about it, it was difficult for him. So in a way, maybe he had every right to be, you know, kind of a little bit fussy occasionally. Yeah, there are moments in the film where he's unrecognizable, especially because of that build where he yeah. just looks like a linebacker. And I'm like, that's Mandy Patankin? Exactly. Much has been written about the, you know, the makeup, the development of the makeup. And of course, it was crucial to, I remember sitting to one side, there were two Fox executives in earlier, in earlier um, viewing. And so I saw one of them turn on and said, do you buy it? I said, sure. It's absolutely got it right there. Do you buy that makeup? You either do or you don't. And uh, and I think it was nicely judged. I was fairly insistent on it being not too smooth. I, I you know I felt it had to have well whatever under discussion for some time, and uh, we were very happy. Of course, there are about four different grades depending on how near the camera the actors were. You know, the the lead actors obviously had to have top quality stuff, but there were probably 40 pieces of individual latex that went on their faces. And of course, the heat and the light and stuff, physically, uh, you know, quite a strain. So when was the first time you saw those extra bits that were shot by your stuntman? I can't remember. I've been, I, you know, I'd heard, you know, certain things have been done and I, 
I can't remember whether I'd seen a bit of it or whatever, but I do remember seeing it and feeling very, very depressed and angry. But I can't remember where it was. It was in the theatre, it wasn't. So, you know, I was being shown it, as it were. I was in LA. But I, I, what stage, you know, exactly, I can't, can't remember. It was finished, basically finished. It hadn't been locked. The print hadn't been locked, but it was basically finished. Nothing I could do. And, you know, at one stage I thought, you know, shall I take my name off it? And I thought, well, no, because, you know, as I say, the first 40 minutes, you know, there's some good stuff in there. <laughs> Even in this whole thing, Adam, Adam Rebo is a wonderful photographer, marvellous photographer, and a very, very great guy. I got on very well with him. But I don't want to be too critical about uh, Gail. I mean, Stanford, business, BA and business, this, that, and the other. And, of course, work for Corman as his executive assistant. But she's not really a producer. I mean, she's not creatively very informed, I have to say. But she she belonged to the kick-ass sort of school of uh, producing, which Corman certainly... And they, you know, they know how to get the bucks worth on the screen, obviously. And, and that's perfect for James, Jim Kahn. Jim, Jimmy Kahn is an obsessive kind of dictatorial director. I saw him in action a couple of times. And, uh, you know, he, in fact... I wonder. Whether, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if somebody didn't sort of have him in retrospect for bullying under the new DGA rules. <laughs> I, I don't mean that because Jim, you know, was a big-hearted but guy as well. But he it, it was explosive, and I think Gail, her only experience working with directors was with James. I mean, there were a couple of other people, not really. I mean, she she that's that's what she thought directors do, and she said, you know, basically, Graham, you've got to. I mean, she sacked somebody halfway through uh, assistant director. I think, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not really my style is is to have a have a relaxed set and have everybody working their best because they they're allowed to work their best. I have a same theory as uh, Fred Zinnemann, Tim's father, his his theory about the auteur. Well, the auteur theory. He said, um, "The words to effect." The scriptwriter is the auteur of the screenplay. The musician, the composer is the auteur of the music. The editor is the auteur of the print, blah, blah, blah. And the director is the auteur of the totality. And I think that's absolutely right. So I've always liked the people, hired good people. Why not? Like get them to do their best, help them do their best. And I always felt that that's what producers should do for directors. In other words, the most important relationship in making a movie and they're all different i understand that physically different the politics are different depending on whether it's independent half independent whatever whether the producer brings the cash or whether it's a studio <laughs> nevertheless if that director is hired and he's hired because presumably people want what he can give or he or she can give then the duty of that of that producer is to make it as possible to get that result from that uh, director and i'm afraid they're not very good at a lot of producers. And that's what Adam said. Adam Israeli had worked in you know Europe, I mean good and with, with some good people, I mean on good projects, well written projects and so and he said, Graham, oh he said, no, Hollywood, the producers not good, not good. And I think he's I think he's generally right. Of course that's not entirely right. I mean I work with a couple of really great ones and and you're looking at people like Howard Kazanian or Kathleen Kennedy or people like that. One of great human beings, first of all, hugely professional and very pleasant to work with and good what they do because they respect 
you know, the, the, the talents and of the people that they're employing and working. Extraordinary. I can't remember where it was in, in the chronology. It must have been before. It must be in 80. Well, impulse was 84. It must be before impulse, I don't believe it. But I got a call. I think I just made, I made an amazing story for Stevens at Spielberg. And uh, I got on very well with him and everything. But I had a call, and I can't remember who was representing me at that time. Oh, that's another story I got about ICM. Who was representing me? And I got this call to go to Lucasfilm. I met with Howard Kazandrin and Kathleen Kennedy. What she was doing there, I don't know, because she was actually with Spielberg. But they're all, I was okay. I had the stamp of approval. I was in. And they said, you know, George would very much like to consider directing um, Star Wars. So I said, no, pretty well there and then. And I don't know. I was so overwhelmed. Uh, I, I, I didn't. <laughs> Her jaw almost hit the deck, you know, it's extraordinary. <laughs> and I thought, oh, have I made a mistake here? But a lot of people were offered it and didn't want to do it. <laughs> I wasn't the only one. And then, of course, it went to Richard Markwood. I think a lot of it was probably to do with, no, it wasn't really that I was English because it was shot in England. And I don't think he worried about the ED, ED fund then. But anyway, um, I, I turned it down on the basis, my own thing is I, I felt morally or intellectually or not even intellectually but morally I wouldn't direct a film that I wouldn't pay to go and see so I sort of film and I felt to make that commitment would be kind of dishonest to myself and, and also to the film that was up for integrity passing up a boatload of cash there I'm sure <laughs> well that's the thing now okay it was directed by Richard Markland what I hadn't thought through obviously I was a boy in a man's world I'm thinking writing a memoir, and that would be the title of it, A Boy in a Man's World. There are things that I didn't really understand. I, I didn't understand, for example, that I had the seal of approval. I mean, Kathleen Kennedy, you know, she produced the amazing stories. Stephen, you know, I was kind of okay, a flavor of the month, if you will, for a second. Richard Markle then, on the back of that, got to make a film called Jagged Edge, which was okay. But I felt that... To direct Star Wars, you, the director is more like a master of ceremonies. He's, he's just sort of dealing with the actors, but not really, he's not making a film. He's not, not directing a film, a movie. So Richard, uh, Richard then went on to make another very, very unsuccessful movie. Then, of course, had a, an embolism, died in, in England. So I always thought that it had a kiss of death. I don't know. But what I had mistaken, what I'd not worked out, of course, was that had I done it, it meant that I would come off it and would put me in a very strong position to then go on to the next project. And what happened after Alienation was I really didn't, I lost my way in a way. I decided to, not to do any more studio, but to just do independent films. And that's okay, provided you have a relationship with a great producer, somebody, or just somebody you have a relationship you can work with. And I hadn't developed that relationship. And that probably, you know, well, it was, I hadn't done it. There were a couple of people earlier on, before I'd made even, or just after Impulse, or just before Impulse, whose names I won't mention, there were two quite large, quite big, independent producers who were interested in me. You know the thing, when as an outsider, you come to Hollywood, you've just had a film opening, so suddenly, and of course I was represented by CAA then anyway, but you, and there's a constant round of meetings with people who want to see who you are. You're new in town, they want to know you, which is fine, I understood. 
uh, Arlene Sellers and, and Alex Wynetsky, for example, was so helpful. It was so charming. She was a remarkable woman. I don't know if she still was. I don't know. Anyway, but she said, Graham, after the meeting, she uh, came a meeting in it. Uh, Graham, my advice to you is stay in Los Angeles as long as you have to to take the meetings and so on. And when they've gone, fly back to the UK, then come back again. <laughs> and whether she, you know, been noting, you know, the fortunes of other foreign directors that went and stayed there and probably did one film or nothing more, I don't know. But anyway, she was uh, very helpful, very charming. But a couple of these people, one of them, one of the producers had a film that was fairly low-key, but uh, looking back, it was a little bit like Duel, Spielberg's picture about the, you know, the truck and the little bit like that, a two-man job in the woods, fugitive thing, which was beautifully written and uh, would have been a marvellous thing to have done. So, you know, there are things that one turned down that probably in retrospect would have been useful to have done. But there we go. That's, that's the way life is. You were going to tell me something about ICM. When at the height of the James Kahn crisis, as it were, I had a, when I, I was pushing him, and ICM, I realized that the Gale and James, Jimmy, Jimmy Cameron, were represented by ICM. I had a phone call from somebody at ICM, sort of high end of ICM, at home one evening, and I was told that if I cast James Kahn, my career would be forfeit. I know it would be bad for my career. You know, some very bad people, and it will not be good for you to do that, right? Okay. Put the phone down and stuff like that. That's like him. The week after we wrap the picture, I hear that Jim has been signed up. Jimmy Carr has been signed up by ICM. Only in Hollywood. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. From then on, by the way, all the quotations from Jimmy Kahn, it was, it was, he was, he, he said, I couldn't direct, Graham Baker couldn't direct traffic. Graham Baker's a nice guy, but uh, what can I tell you? You know, strawberry. What happened was somebody at Fox, before we started shooting, we were in pre production, somebody, I think it was at Fox, gave me James Kahn's, Jimmy Kahn's psychiatrist's phone number because I was concerned. I knew that he was, I knew he was still doing, you know, coke. It was quite obvious. And I was concerned about, you know, how it might have an adverse, adverse effect on, on, on the set. And the guy was very helpful. Psychiatrist said, it's exactly what the thing. I prescribed a thing called tryptamine, which is an antidepressant, but there are side effects. And it'll be worse. It was worse at the weekend for him, you know, and, uh, he'd come in on Monday. Well, that and night shooting, because night shooting, you probably know about night shooting is, you know, whatever you're doing, any film. Night shooting complicates everything, and it was bad for him. You know, again, attempting to keep awake or keep going, it was not good for him. It was a very unhappy experience. But he discovered, I think, that I'd been given his psychiatrist telephone number. And I think he felt that uh, I was going behind his back. It was not that at all. I just wanted to help. You know, but it was another little nagging kind of something that nagged him, rather like having to pay his own insurance. I think he was quoted as saying, I'm a boy, I don't want no, I don't know what it is he said, but boy, when you're down, they, they really get you when you're down, or some some quote like that, which saying exactly what he felt about the fact when he was the fact that it's his own fault. It's neither here nor there. But I uh, I was rather amused by this traffic uh, I couldn't direct traffic because uh, I think the day before I read that he'd, he'd run his motorbike and 
Beverly Glen into the side of a truck or something. He couldn't stay on the back of his motorbike for. <laughs> I didn't go on. I didn't go on record as saying it, but I, I, I almost wrote a letter. And, and, and anyway, it doesn't matter. It was definitely sort of poor old GB me. You know, I was I was getting some adverse ad comments from from Khan. <laughs> I wish him well. I liked him. I think he's, uh, you know, but he's his own worst enemy, honestly. So you just swore off Hollywood productions after that? Pretty well. I mean, I, I made two independent productions, which I shouldn't have made. One for Krishna Schlock <laughs> and another one for, uh, who was that? I can't remember, it was Beowulf. Oh, sorry, what am I talking about? Born to Ride. That's right. Born to Ride, which was a John Stamos thing, a Warner Brothers thing that uh, I thought, well, actually, do you know, I really did it with a, uh, the first one was Warner Brothers. Fred Weintraub is the name of the um, producer, Greek. I did it with the intent of making a, a real Preston Sturge, a real John Sturge, no, one of those American 30s adventure stories. Great story, wonderful story. Set in Spain, and it's the world. It was written by the daughter of somebody who was in the in this event in the 30s. What it was is a, a motorbike tour around uh, the Spain and stuff. But somebody wanted to break out the American American intelligence wanted to break out a scientist who'd been imprisoned by by somebody. It was in Spain, anyway. And what they did is they got this group of cavalry, U.S. cavalry. They didn't have bikes then, and got them to train, train them to ride motorbikes, and then enter for the event in plain clothes and stuff, and set this guy loose. Wonderful idea, great idea, great action idea and stuff. So I, I thought that'd be fun to do. And in fact, it was, except the fact that it never got off the ground. It went to, to big screen. John Stamos. There was a there was a period when not just Warner Brothers but other other companies were taking a television star and making the switch over to the big screen. They thought that would be a way of which you know, taking an audience with them, as it were. But as it happened, it didn't work. Are you still working today, or have you retired? I'm writing. I, I directed a small section of something locally here couple of years ago, but I really, I'm not sure that, I know this, I think film has changed. I think the audiences have changed a little bit. The system of making films obviously changed tremendously, regardless of what's happened over the last two years. It was already changing. Commissioning editors were getting younger and younger, and in my view, commissioning stuff for the wrong reasons, and stories would come up. Plus, many, I don't see many films that I want to see now. I'm going back to look at older films all the time. I, I, you know, okay, I'm at the age I am. I know that. It's not that. I'm, I'm open to looking at and enjoying films, of course I do. But I'm not seeing them anymore. And uh, I think Andy Warhol was right when he said that in the future, everyone's going to be famous for 15 minutes. We're seeing more and more directors and women, lots of women directors, very good directors too. But they come along and they make maybe one film or one and a half films and stuff. But I don't see careers that are, in perpetuity, you know, they're not actually continuous. And, of course, there are lots of other genres available now. I mean, the documentary is another weasel way in which directors appear to be getting work, but they're not really. And, of course, there's the short film, the five-minute film, which kids are making on their telephone. And little festivals here and there for, you know, people win, win prizes for that. And it doesn't mean to say they're going to have a career in film. And, of course, the film schools are churning people out 
you know, 15 of the dozen. So I don't, I don't really feel that I'm part of what was a, a real industry. Um, it's, it's, it's changed. So what I'm doing is <laughs> I've just adapted a, a, a novel by an Irish author uh, into a six-part television uh, series, which uh, is being looked at in Hollywood as we speak. Um, but of course, everything's been a little bit on hold with, uh, with the virus stuff and production. Well, those now coming back. But I feel as though uh, there's so much box ticking now, and I'm not interested in ticking boxes. I think that's really the basic. Basic. I would have to. In fact, in fact, I talked to somebody I know locally here, who is a, a, a script advisor, content advisor. So anyway, so he gave me, you know, the inside of what they're looking for. And what they're looking for basically is things that aren't genre films, they're in between genres, they're new, they're fresh, they're blah, 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 blah. But they're basically box ticking. And I'm, I'm really not up for that, so I haven't bothered really. How did uh, the pandemic affect you? You can't see. They're in an absolutely charming place here. It's, 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 we've got a little lake, it's in the country, we're surrounded by countryside, it's half an acre and stuff. We're in heaven in a way. I, my heart goes out to people that live in an apartment somewhere and can't move, and so I know it's fine. However, it has disorientated me because the news is all pretty dire. And also, you know, it's not just the pandemic. There are strange things happening now. That airline are being forced down in Belarusia is extraordinary. So, yes, it's, it's affected me as it's affected a lot of people, I think, in a way it's like slightly depressing and so on. But work helps, you know, writing obviously helps tremendously. And we have a house in Italy. So on Monday, we're going to, on Tuesday, we're going to be flying out to Italy. We're not quite sure yet whether we can get back or what the rules are. There's so many rules about getting, you know, kind of getting tested and so on. But uh, at least that will, uh, that'll be a change. If you write that memoir, I definitely want to read it. That sounds fantastic. Okay. And wonderful. Well, thank you. It's been a great, great talking to you, Mike. Right up next, we are going to hear from writer Rockney S. O'Bannon. From what I understand, you grew up in kind of a Hollywood family. My mom and dad were both uh, in the industry. My dad was a gaffer, a lighting guy. He worked at Warner Brothers for like 40 years. So I used to go visit sets with him. And we'd always look over at the offices where the producers and writers were and kind of wondered what was going on in there. But my experience is always on, like, on set, which was awesome. And then my mom was a professional dancer. And she was in worked at MGM during that that whole Busby Berkeley era and all that. So she's in a, a whole bunch of movies. You can find clips on online. So neither of them really in, in the area that I ultimately got into in terms of writing and producing, but clearly they were very comfortable with the notion of me getting into, into showbiz. Didn't seem to trouble them as much as it might if they were other parents. So uh, no, and, and just awesome folks. So you never had that illusion of the actors are the people that go on stage and just make stuff up. No, 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 not at all. Yes. I got an early age. I got to see them fumbling and mumbling and, and, and then also just seeing moments when you could just tell that they were outside themselves in a performance and 
you know, they were transported and watching that was awesome. And I remember literally like eight years old and seeing that and being wildly impressed and thought that was great. So what were some of your early scripts like? The very first thing I wrote was a pilot script. I was, I think I was like around 10 years old or so. And there was a show on at the time called The Man from Uncle. And then there was a unfortunately named Girl from Uncle, which actually had an adult woman, 70 powers, but it was still Girl from Uncle. So I thought there needed to be a Boy from Uncle. So I wrote a pilot script called Boy from Uncle. You may notice it did not get made. It was, you know, nobody ever saw it. Anyway, so that was my first foray into, into any sort of screenwriting. And then, uh, you know, cut to 18 years later, I sold my first script. But And then between those times, would just was writing spec absolutely everything. I mean, I would spec, write spec features, spec other shows, and all of that. And then um, finally in the mid-80s, uh, there was a, CBS was bringing back The Twilight Zone. And Steven Spielberg was going to do amazing stories at NBC. And I'd written a couple of spec episodes for a show called Dark Room, which was on ABC a few years before that. James Coburn as the host and introducing the segments. But they were basically, they were half hour like Twilight Zone. So I wrote a couple of specs for that and then got it, actually got it into the producers. Peter Fisher was one of them. They liked it, but they said we've been canceled. So as I like to tell writing classes, the great thing about spec material is it doesn't dissolve. It's always there. So I just put them up on the shelf. I didn't know what exactly what I would ever be able to do with two half hour, little half hour Twilight Zone like scripts. But then lo and behold, these two other shows got uh, ordered in the mid 80s and uh, I got them into both shows and Twilight Zone brought me in and I met with them and pitched them something else that became Shadow Man, another my second episode for the show. And, and then they hired me on staff and it went from there. And I actually ended up writing an Amazing Stories episode in the second season for Steven and then he and I did uh, Sequest together some years later. But yeah, it was, you know, kind of one of those overnight successes that took me till I was almost 30, 18 years from the time I first wrote Fade In on something to when I actually sold something. Was your first thing that you sold to Twilight Zone, was that Wordplay? Wordplay was, yeah, it was the first thing I, I sold. And again, I mean, the value of it, if I may, and, and, and you know, my advice is it's just got to be something that absolutely stands out. And that happened to be one that stood out. There was a second script Back into those two that I'd written for Dark Room. And I don't remember what the other one was. And the other one wasn't the standout that Wordplay was. So if I hadn't had a script like Wordplay or hadn't had Wordplay specifically, I don't know that it would have caught their interest. Weird is good, different, and it worked. You actually talked to two of my co hosts on a uh, podcast that we do about Twilight Zone 85 called Dreams for Sale. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because as we're going through episode by episode, I have to tell you that Wordplay and Shadow Man are two of the ones that just all of these years later, I can still remember them so well. That's great. They just stood out so beautifully. That's great. No, that, that's really good. Yeah, those are my two earliest ones. And yeah, just so I went from like, you know, I was writing spec episodes of at the time there were shows like like Magnum PI, I think was on and all those kind of universal shows. And, you know, and I was writing spec all of those. And just wanted to get my foot in the door. So the very fact that my very first job was on a return of Twilight Zone was like the, the greatest dream come true. You said you were the story editor, is that right? Story editor. I was actually, they made, brought me on as a staff writer, which is like the lowest position. And I did that. And so I could sit in meetings, but couldn't comment, which is fine because I was so nervous. I didn't, I wouldn't have commented anyway. And but got to observe the process for, I think a month or so. And then I did a draft of, a for another episode, I'll say based on a short story, 
And uh, it was, and they liked that a lot. The the draft, the draft I did of that. So I, they brought me on. They put me on as a story editor, which gave me, you know, higher status, and uh, and kind of went from there. How did Alienation come about? Alienation was idea. It wasn't an idea I, I ever pitched to Twilight Zone because it didn't seem to fit. But Twilight Zone ran for two years, and then after that, because it had a, some a bit of cachet in the industry. Even though it didn't catch fire on CBS, it was still considered a, an interesting outlier show. So there's interest in me going in and kind of pitching series ideas and such. So I, I did go around right after Twilight Zone got, got canceled and pitched the notion of alienation two, three places. I'm not sure, you know, not not many, but and nobody quite got it. And it may have been just not the pitch wasn't great or whatever. But and again, it's an unusual at the time, an unusual idea. So didn't catch fire. So in the spring of the following year, I was just going to wait until it was staffing season and, you know, work to get on staff on something else. And so I wrote it. I wrote Alienation as a spec feature and uh, had had developed something with the producer Richard Kobritz for Columbia and that didn't didn't go, but he liked the script a lot. And so I just kind of pitched the idea and he loved the idea. So he and I kind of worked on the, the spec script together. And then we got it submitted places. And then Gail heard and, and Jim Cameron read it and liked it. And so Gail, who was looking to start producing more things beyond the Terminator series, grabbed it up and it, we were off to the races at, at Fox. What was that first draft like? What was the early version of it like? The, the premise was the same and the relationship between the two guys was always kind of there because that's what interested me a great deal. And that fish out of water and, and just that notion of having someone who was a very much an outsider to a particular society being a commentator on it, being able to look at, at something that, that those within the society just kind of take for granted, but having this kind of outside observer. And there is no more you know, extreme observer in terms of outsider than an alien. So I thought that was that I like that. And that was always kind of in place. There was a lot of uh, the seawater as an, as an acid was in there. Milk, making them drunk was another thing that was in there. Cause it's just fun for me to come up with stuff like that. But there were other things in it as well that uh, didn't make it ultimately to the, the final production. And one of the things that people really responded to, but it just was production wise, I guess impossible to do was at one point, they go, the two cops are investigating, and they go to a concert at the, uh, I think it was the Universal Amphitheater at the time, but a big, you know, rock concert thing. And it was Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac was the performer. For some reason, according to the script, for some reason, Stevie Nicks's voice was terrifically appealing to the aliens. So she was like, had had this giant surge in her career because she, so it was, the reason why it was unproducible was because it was an audience full of, of aliens. Okay. And if this was like decade or two before, you know, you could reproduce uh, crowds with, with CGI. So it would have been, I always thought, okay, we just make like Halloween mat, you know, you don't have to do like elaborate makeup, but you know, you just like make a trillion, whatever, and you shoot pieces or whatever that is. Anyway, couldn't work, but I, I always loved that scene because, you know, they're cheering and all they're, 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 they're going crazy. And then out comes Stevie Nicks. And then she, you know, as a greeting, she says something to them in their own language and then they all go crazy. You know, it's like, it's, so I, I love the kind of reality of that. It was, was fun for me, but yeah, it was not to be. There are worse people in the world that could rewrite your script than James Cameron, but I'm curious. Yes. <laughs> no, you're right. I'm okay. curious what that was like for you to have your script rewritten. I mean, was that the first time? This is going to sound like, like BS. Okay. But nobody likes to have their script rewritten, nor do I. Okay. But 
I had done a bunch of passes and drafts and et cetera, right? And it was my first feature script, right? So, and I, and I got paid a lot. It was a nice, really nice big sale. And then, um, so I got a call, a very kind of sheepish call from the, the Fox executive saying, Jim's, and I'd, ta- I'd spoken to Jim several times. So it was, wasn't that I didn't, you know, it was like totally out of the blue. Not that he was going to rewrite was out of the blue, but the, but the, him, him, he and I had spoken and talked about the script, et cetera, was what had already occurred. And so I got this call from the Fox executive saying, Jim, we have an opportunity for Jim to, to do a pass at it. It's a three-week rewrite, basically for, you know, pass, just for production. You know, it's your first script. We need to bring it down a bit just to make it production friendly. And I was just, I was happy. I was excited because it was, yeah, it was Jim Cameron, right? So Jim and I talked several times on the phone while he was in the midst of it. Not really particularly about the script. I mean, I didn't try to, he didn't want to share with me and I didn't want to like get in his face. When the script was finished, it actually took him more than three weeks. So production was not particularly thrilled. But again, it's Jim Cameron and he's, he's doing work on it. So I, everybody agrees it's good. But he had changed kind of some of the tone of it that he put it more in a, in a, in a inner city setting. I, mine was more century city was more to me. I thought there was more contrast in that. It's just my nature to that kind of characters. I tend to find more potentially interesting, but then also he'd added like 20 pages to it or something. So it wasn't really ready for production. He did some really interesting things. And look, his dialogue is terrific. And he, and there was an action sequence at the end that I had had, that involved a helicopter and it did go out over the ocean, but I guess production wise, it was going to be super friendly. Plus it wasn't what he, he came up with the, the idea of them being on a boat that was sinking, which is a hundred percent more correct idea than me with the guy in, in the helicopter over the, like that. So things like that were, were terrific. But anyway, so then they brought me back on and I did another pass to bring it down to, to length. So I was working off of Jim's draft, but there was stuff of my own that, that we all kind of agreed to put back in. And then we also production changes and, and actor changes and those sorts of things. So, and then Jim didn't put his name on it. In the world of feature films, it's probably not that unusual of an occurrence. I'm sure other people have been, been rewritten by people that are not Jim Cameron. So I could, it's not like they hired, they brought in these two guys that they thought were really hot. They'd just written some spec that they liked, but you know, you, you know, you're never going to hear from them again. No harm, no foul, as far as I'm concerned. What was your relationship like with Graham Baker? Good relationship. I mean, Graham's a super nice guy. I mean, super, super nice guy. Very enthusiastic about the project, but it was a big project. It was a very, very, very big project. It was a tough one for him, to be very honest. Yeah, it was gentlemen right up to the end. You know, it's a bit of a bucking bronco. You've got you've got Jimmy Kahn and and Mandy Patinkin, okay? Very different acting styles, which I think in that regard works well for the piece because Jimmy's a very kind of instinctual from the gut kind of guy. And Mandy is a very intellectual, measured kind of guy, which for the two characters, I think worked really incredibly well. But they're both a handful in their own way. Not not ugly, bad, nothing like that, but they're just a handful. I mean, you know, actors can be, we all can be. So I think that was Graham being a British gentleman, you know, was, uh, that was a tough one for him to kind of tough seas for him to, to navigate. Tell me about the title and how the title changed. Yeah. The, t- the title was originally outer heat not a great title, but just couldn't, you know, and think of what it might be. And this was before there was, there was a whole bunch of cop buddy movies that came out around the same time, almost contiguous with lethal weapon. So lethal weapon, which kind of, you know, introduced cop buddy 
you know, in large part, this was around the same time. But then there was Dead Heat, which is about a cop, dead cop, I think, partner. I think there's other heats, I think, you know. I think Red Heat maybe might have been. Yes, Red Heat. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so there was a lot of heat ones going on. Okay, so by the time we were we were done, uh, Outer Heat, pretty clunky title. Everybody agreed, including me. But then we're just kind of a search for other titles. Alienation was just in the mix. It wasn't me. It might have been Gail. I think Gail may have come up with it, but I know Gail championed it. I think she really liked it, breaking it into two into two words. And then it just kind of became the title, and it, and it certainly grew on me, and now it's like the title. So it, uh, it was the right title. The draft of the script that I found was a little bit... I don't want to say Frankenstein, but you could definitely tell that there were some pages in there that had come afterwards. So like the whole idea of San Francisco versus George Jetson. And there are some pages where he's Jetson and there's some pages where he's Francisco. At what stage in the process was it when that change took place? As long as it didn't show up on screen that way, we're, we're fine. Okay, it's a script. That took place because whoever, Hanna-Barbera, I think did Jetsons, but I don't know if they were the ones we talked to, but it was George Jetson through my draft and throughout. And then we were getting very near production. They obviously talked to, I'll say Hanna-Barbera, because I think that's who it was, and to ask for permission. And Hanna-Barbera was intending to do a Jetson feature, I think, at the time, animated feature, I think. And so they just didn't want to offer it up. And so uh, we couldn't do George Jetson. So then it was just a matter of trying to come up with other names. And I, you know, to try to save us among the, the names were, I'm sure, other names from other, other movies and TV shows and that sort of thing, references like that. But then ultimately on the list, I put Sam Francisco because I just thought, okay, that it's not, nobody's going to, you know, the, the city is not going to get upset at us. That's what it became. But they had already, the actors had already been rehearsing and, Jimmy Kahn just liked the way calling him George. He felt that there was the hard consonants and such, which just made it kind of seemed a, 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 not disrespectful. What's you know, like, like, you know, kind of a, a great kind of like put down sort of thing, the way he was saying it. So it was Jimmy Kahn who said, even though it's okay, you know, your name, name Sam, I'm going to call you George, which really works for the piece. Cause it's kind of like, I just, you know, it's like Sykes kind of not wanting, knowing that the names were made up anyway. I just would, I'm going to call you George. So it worked in that regard, but yeah, it started out as just a practical consideration and then um, kind of turned into, like I said, kind of a nice moment, you know, when they're kind of first introducing themselves to each other. I'm curious, as far as the design of the aliens, were they close to what you had in mind? What I had in mind was much more brutish. Like Stan Winston did the makeup and Stan Winston's awesome. I've worked with him since. It's Stan Winston, so I can't, you know, but whatever the, whatever the creative considerations that, led him in a particular direction. Yeah, I wasn't thrilled with it. I wanted them to be much more brutish looking. I think in the script, I described them as having a kind of a, you know, kind of pronounced forehead, bony forehead ridge. I don't want to say too Klingon-like, but, you know, start with Klingon and kind of, you know, build from there, you know, extrapolate. But I wanted them to be very brutish looking because they were a physical race. You know, that was, that was what they were, that's what they were born and bred to do. And but in contrast, they were very soft-spoken and 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 thoughtful and and all of that. So I really like that contrast. I thought the makeup that we ended up with was too easily a person in 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 makeup. And then they also didn't do the hands, so it just didn't. It was you know, you tell they weren't human. Okay, so it ultimately landed well enough. But yeah, I th- I just to this day I still think it would have been served better if they were just 
harder to like when you looked at them and then you get to, and then you get to like them because of what, what, what they're saying and how they're acting and reacting and all that. So that's why you, it's why you direct your own stuff. It's funny that you say that because the one movie I always think of when I'm watching this movie, I think of alien nation is district nine and just how the, insects are absolutely terrifying but they're so much nicer than any of the people that are in the film you know district nine which i really like yeah no nothing knows nothing about what i just said regards to alienation but yes that's exactly it now in their case again they've got that cg at their disposal that the aliens in, in district nine were far more beyond you know far beyond anything that i could i imagined at the time i knew i was going to be a human in in a in a prosthetic makeup but yes you're right that did carry that notion across that I was would have liked to have had in this in, in alienation. How long after the movie comes out is there talk of the television show? Pretty soon. I'm trying to think of the, the timeline, but I know that met with Fox they for uh, about the TV series, but I just sold a spec another spec script for me to direct. And we were just starting pre-production on that. So I wasn't available to do the TV series. To be very honest, I think Fox was probably perfectly happy because they had Kenny Johnson in their back pocket and Kenny time, you know, I'm a big fan of Kenny Johnson. So he'd done V. And so he seemed like a, you know, an experienced TV guy, you know, which is great. Both they and I were happy that, that he was available to do it. And ultimately, you know, the, I'm very proud of the TV series as well. I think it follows through on a lot of the character stuff that I had had in the original script and was my intention and my taste, you know, better than, you know, to a certain regard, the feature film, nobody's fault. Feature films tend to, you know, need to be a little bit more runaway train and, and obviously action oriented and all that sort of thing. But yeah, very proud of the series. So it sounds like ultimately Alienation opened some doors for you because that's your first successful feature film. And then you managed to write another film and get to a chance to direct right off of it. You know, that's what you're always trying to do with your, you know, with your, with your film careers. Like the way I put it is how many walls can I get over? So that if things don't start to not go well, I don't immediately fall back into the, you know, in, into the mush pit, but there's some walls I can, you know, I can retreat back toward. So yeah, I'd, I'd been on a, you know, well-regarded, unusual television series in, in Twilight Zone, sold a spec script for a really nice amount of money that be, was made into a movie immediately. We sold it on Easter and it was in production in September. Yeah. So, cause they wanted it for summer. You know, it was that it was that kind of fast track thing, and then with the second feature I wrote, it's called Fear. Ultimately, uh, with Ali Sheedy was in it, and Pru Taylor Vince was it. I wrote it very specifically to be uh, a first directing thing. So small cast was more idea oriented than any sort of action oriented that sort of thing. You know, very tense and suspenseful. If I could actually pull it off, but designed for that, and ultimately, yeah, it sold it and got it made. It couldn't have been too much after that, though, too, that you were doing Sequest. I did Fear, directed that, and then um, got a call from Amblin, Stevens Company, and they were looking to do, I don't think their word was Star Trek Underwater, but uh, you, I mean, uh, that's the easy shorthand for it. And so just started to develop that and got Stephen very interested in my notion that it didn't take place 500 years in the future like Star Trek, Star Trek does, but was much closer in. So it was something that was much more you know, identifiable for our audience. And, and it was a positive view. Obviously there, there were still human conflict, but instead of, I think the Amblin, the execs, their first notion was we've so polluted our, our, you know, our continents that we have to retreat down into the ocean. And I went away and thought about that. And I came back and I said, rather than that, 
why don't we place it like 25 years in the future, which is the world our kids are going to inherit and, and make it that it's not that we're retreating into the oceans, but we've developed a technology that allow us to explore biggest frontier left here on earth. And like I said, there'd still be conflicts and that sort of thing, but they, but it still isn't, it isn't like, you know, uh, disastrous. It's like, it's, it's actually, we're down there for positive reasons. And that's what, why we got Bob Ballard involved and Bob Ballard, who went down and found the Titanic and, and, you know, among other accomplishments that Bob was a consultant for us during the development and also was an on-screen commentator in the first season. So, which I'm very proud of all that stuff. When that cast, it was so nice seeing Roy Scheider on TV every week, having Ted Ramey on there. That was wonderful. Yeah, I know all that. No, the very first meeting, because it was Mitch Etten, I was pitching stuff with Steven and all that. And then we, they said, Roy Scheider may be ripe or ready to come to TV. So Jaws is probably my favorite movie. If you, if you woke me up in the middle of there's I got a million favorite movies, but you woke me up in the middle of the night and said, favorite movie, I'd say Jaws. So the very fact that I'm in a room with Steven Spielberg, and which is always amazing anyway, but with Steven Spielberg and then Roy Scheider as well, talking about a TV series that I'm creating was like, you know, it was really hard to kind of process that as a, as a kind of, you know, geek fan, you know, fanboy. That's so nice to hear. I mean, you grew up going to sets and all this stuff, but you can still get a little fanboyish oh. around, you know, these guys who are just incredible. 100%. No, I, I scare actors and people because I, I go, I, it's kind of my thing. I go, I loved you in, and I'll name some super obscure thing that they were in young, you know, at the beginning of their career that, uh, you know, that they barely remember, but it's, and it's not because I'm, you know, I've, I've studied up. It's just, I've, I watched, I've watched way too many movies. Can you tell me how did Farscape come about for you? Farscape was uh, the Jim Henson company under, under Brian, Brian Henson. Had, Brian had just taken over the company. His father had passed away unexpectedly and uh, Brian had t- taken the helm and he was a very young, very young man at the time. And he was looking for something. They obviously had all the kids shows and the and the on the Muppet stuff. And but he was looking for something that would kind of be a little more adult and kind of show all the facets of what of what the company could do because they were getting into a lot of other things. And and just his his own sensibilities was obviously you know beyond just the the children programming. So brought me in. They had they knew they wanted a show. Uh, they tried to develop it with with another writer, and uh, but it was. It was nothing like the final show, but anyway, so they they tried to develop it before, couldn't land on something, but the very notion that they said to me, you know, what we want is a show. I think the example they gave was the cantina scene in Star Wars. They wanted something that was like that, which like obviously filled with all sorts of really you know different and exotic aliens, which they could do. They go, we want that. We want like almost all aliens. So I thought, okay, if they're gonna, okay, I'll take them at their word. So. That's why Farscape became a show about the only person that's that's human is John Crichton, the lead, the main guy, and everybody else is an alien, certainly on the ship he's on. And then just to add spice and to give us some people that didn't have to be, you know, either made up, you know, for hours every day. I made the bad guys look like the only the only people that look like the human were the bad guys. So just kind of developed from there. And then just the the loopy sense of humor and all that was all kind of born out of the Henson Company kind of sensibility, that kind of adult, very wise, you know, worldly wise kind of perspective on things and, and taking tropes and turning them on the, turning them on their heads and that sort of thing. And then we just got the greatest cast 
you know, it's one of those magical things. And, you know, we got just absolutely the cast, cast that where the chemistry just totally gelled. And, and then for production financial reasons, we, we shot in Australia, but that was huge too, because it gave us access to those, uh, those actors, you know, beyond Ben Browder, who was obviously an American and here, but I uh, was a lead, but all the other actors are, are out of Australia. So we got all of that, you know, all that wonderful stuff. And then the artisans who made the show, all the design people and all that were the same people who made, made, you know, Road Warrior and Mad Max movies and, you know, George Miller and all, you know, and that's, I think that made the show huge. And then also just, there was locations and locations, you know, not so far outside of Sydney that were not places that we'd seen before. They weren't, you know, Vasquez rocks that you've seen on Star Trek, you know, forever. So all those, all, it just kind of, it all, all those factors came together. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the campaign to bring the, the show back? Bless the fans. We, you know, they, they've been, they've been hung in there with us for a lot of years. It's been 20 years. In fact, not last year, obviously because of COVID, but two years ago, a lot of the cast and Brian and I went on kind of a 20th anniversary tour and went to conventions kind of all over the place. And we would fill rooms. We'd still fill room, fill rooms. And it's just the passion for the show and the, and the, and, and, you know, the fan, appreciation for it it's just so wonderful and the people are so nice it's just it's such a group it's such a great group of people so you know we keep saying we're trying to bring it back you know and, and I, I feel bad continuing to say that but we are actively presently as we speak working toward exactly that so we're making our very best efforts so it's either going to we're either going to sell it and get it get it up and running somewhere or we'll have to kind of decide that now is not the time but we're making a very big push at the moment. So fingers crossed, as soon as we know something, you know, there's something to know, we're going to obviously make it announce it in a very big way. I mean, if they can bring back shows like X-Files and some of these other things, you would think there's such a fan base for that. Well, I was wait- I was waiting for the iCarly and, and Saved by the Bell returns because I know those have to those have to get out of the way first. Farscape that's got this enormous fan base, you know, passionate fan base, Maybe time for that. I'm not sure. And also a big, colorful show that any streamer would probably bring new eyes. Yeah, I think might be might be time for this. So we'll see. Are you still working on Evil currently? Um, currently on Evil, we uh, uh, season two. We were we we wrote the season and produced most of the season. Season two of expecting to be on CBS, the network, yet again. And then just a short while ago, they announced that uh, they're actually going to premiere us on Paramount Plus. Which is really good. I mean, we're we're all very happy about that because it was great to be on CBS, and you know, but we're quite the the uh, the outlier for for CBS Network. So I think it was a, it was tough for us to kind of draw an audience to CBS because we're we're a pretty edgy show. We're, it's the Robert Michelle King created it and and produced it and showrun it. They've got a really good network sensibility. You know, they're good at that. Good fight. Good wife. I mean, is, was their show, which was again, very not network, not traditional network at all. So, and evil was that as well. And that's just the way they are. That's, that's their, their imaginations. But uh, I think being on Paramount plus is going to be a better, a better home and a better fit for us. So I don't know when, when this podcast is up, but it'll probably will be available. is available on Paramount plus even now. So people should check that out. Mr. O'Bannon, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure, Mike. You take care. The forecast mostly sunny skies. If it's one of those days and you're convinced nothing will stop the pain, then reach for new calm 
no other pain reliever has been proven more effective for your needs. Nucom, now specially formulated for newcomers. And last but not least, we are going to hear from the one and only Fetterchuck, Mr. Peter Jason. Tell me what that process was like of being Fetterchuck. He was a nasty son of a bitch. Graham Baker was directing, and I met him uh, at a dinner party. We kind of hit it off, and he called me in and said, I want to use you in my uh, next movie. I said, great. So I showed up, and we had a read-through. I remember really understanding too much about what was going on with the aliens and everything until I actually saw saw him on a set, you know? You talk about aliens, you think aliens. Oh, my God, what are they? You know? That was the biggest probably discussion, pre-production discussion, was what are the aliens going to look like? Because these people are assimilating with the uh, with the regular folk here on Earth, but they've got to look different, but they can't look. So I think I think they made a happy medium of, about being kind of spacified yet normal, kind of normal looking, except for the head cone head and the kind of a round head. I love the freckles that they that they came up with instead of hair. They had a, I remember they took a long time in makeup for their freckles on their head and their hands. That was a big deal. It was like three hours in makeup, 45 minutes to take them off every day. So that's that's like really difficult on the actors and on the makeup people, on, on the scheduling people too. So, you know, they try to schedule you after you've been made up, shooting scenes without without aliens in it until they're, they're ready to go. We shot in the wintertime, so it was really cold. But it, I mean, in L.A., it's never really cold, but it was cold and wet. I think I'm not sure if it was Christmas, January, February time, but it was cold and wet. And inside those masks, it was boiling hot. All the aliens were sick all the time, you know, because uh, I know Mandy Patinkin was like miserable and Terrence Stamp was miserable, you know, because they had to be in them for a long time. And a lot of the stuff was outside. My my stuff was easy. I didn't have any hair or makeup. You know, I mean, I went to hair and makeup, but, you know, they went, yeah, you're fine. Move it. Move, Move over for a real, for a real makeup job. One of my first scenes with uh, with uh, James Conn was was uh, in the car down at the beach, and the aliens you know, were terrified of the beach, so they didn't want to go in the water. But this is one scene I forget when it was, but I'm, I'm, he smashes my face into the steering wheel. We had a rehearsal, where he came out and, and he tried to smash my face in the steering wheel. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you, but the neck is one of the strongest muscles in your body thank god several rehearsals i stopped like fraction of an inch before he smashed my face into the steering wheel they padded it you know i said that i went to the director and said, i'm not sure if james con knows this is acting <laughs> he says oh really okay well listen uh i tell you what we're gonna pad the steering wheel so they took a half an hour and they padded the whole steering wheel. So anywhere he pushed me on my on the thing, I was protected, which was great. I never did. I was told. But the next day I couldn't move my neck. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Those muscles from stopping being smashed in the steering wheel was like, oh my god. But and then I put a I put a bunch of blood, a blood pack in my hand. So then when he smashed my hand, I put threw my hand up and shoved the blood up my nose with my hand, right? And so when I put my hand away, my hand was all bloody and the blood is pouring out of my nose. And it looked, uh, it looked awesome. It looked just awesome. <laughs> that was one of my favorite effects that I got to do in that movie. But mostly I was a pain in the ass, the guy who hated uh, the aliens and, and 
pretty, I was just mad, angry all the time. But I think one of the funniest things about that movie, you know, I thought it was a really good movie, by the way. And when we finished shooting it and it, and it aired, and it did pretty well. It made like 35, 40 million bucks, I think. But uh, they decided to make a TV series out of it. I remember my agent called up and said, they want to see you for the TV series of uh, Alienation. And I said, oh, great. Well, do I have to go on an audition? He said, no, they just want to see you. I said, oh, okay, cool. So I went over there. I walked in the room, and the producer goes, oh, no, no, you're all wrong. <laughs> I said, for the part of, I'm here for the part of Podarczyk. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're all wrong. I said, you know, I created the role, don't you? And he oh, you did? And I said, yeah, did you see the movie? <laughs> and the guy said, well, you're all wrong. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's Hollywood for you. <laughs> I'm all wrong for the role that I created. Oh, okay. Have you had for, ever had to wear all that kind of makeup? I'm trying to think. I don't think you've ever done like a Star Trek or anything, have you? Well, I've worn lots of hairs, you know, not mustaches and beards and wigs. And, but as far as heavy-duty makeup, I did a mask, a couple of death masks. Those were fun. They put a couple of straws in your nose and they throw plastic over your face and you breathe in through the straws while they make a death mask. Because if you're going to be killed and they're going to use the body, they want to have a, a lifelike face. You know. So I've done that a few times. But heavy-duty makeup? No. On stage, sure. I mean, I did play I played Taj Mahal the bandit in Rashomon. And I shaved my head, except for a top notch, and, and uh, soaked out my eyebrows and put in new ones above my eyes and kind of painted myself green. But uh, I'm trying to think. Going back early on, can't come up with anything that I really did any heavy-duty makeup on film that I can come up But I guess I've had lucky. I've been lucky. Last time we talked, it was... Gosh, probably still a few years before The Other Side of the Wind finally came out. I'm so curious what you thought of seeing that after so many years. Well, I was just so happy to have it come up. You know, I was just so happy to have it finally viewed. It was not the movie I thought it was going to be. When we were making it, John Car John uh, Houston was the star. And when I saw the movie, kind of, it was kind of Peter Bogdanovich was kind of the star, I think, or... Uh, I don't know. It was, it was kind of pieced together, and I guess Houston was the star, but this didn't seem like it like it was what we were making for some reason. I'm glad it was made. I'm glad everybody got to see it. I'm glad everyone got to see Houston's performance. I'm glad, uh, you know, it was finally put together, and and, and Gary, Gary Graver's photography and Frank Marshall finally put that thing together, and the music was great. The great Michelle Legrand did the music and and Orson's direction and, and all those great performances. I think a lot of the performances were lost from my point of view. You know, that's what happens in the editing room. You know, it's never never really lives up to your expectations. I find my performance never lives up to my expectations. Once in a while, Walter Hill did the Forty Eight Hours. That movie uh, I thought was awesome and lived up to my expectations. It's when they cut you all up and cut you out and stuff like that that makes you feel like adaptation. I love the movie, but it wasn't the movie that was written and uh, changed and, and uh, my scene with Meryl Streep was cut. And, you know, stuff like that is 
that always bothers you. I was cut out of the unreal totally. I guess the first first days came back, and, and, and James Woods was, like, stealing everything. So they cut back on Savage's character and went with the James Woods character. And the Savage character, I was part of that incidental story. I, Priscilla Pointer was his mother, and my scene was as a reporter was with her. So when they cut back on Savage, they cut back on her, which they cut me out. You know, that stuff happens. You just want to be told before you take your wife to the premiere. <laughs> That's always disappointing when you this not coming in here. Oh, wait, I didn't come in. Wait a minute. Oh, I guess I'm not in this. It happened on the movie Deadwood, too. There were so many characters, and we all had great parts, and they shot it all. But when they made the movie, it's just, I guess they didn't have time or whatever. And the main characters got their share, but the incidental characters, which I thought was what Deadwood was all about, at least during the series, they were all great parts. Just got thrown to the wayside, kind of. And, uh, you know, it's my sour grapes, but, you know, you asked me to tell you, and I'm telling you. God, I love the, the dialogue in that. It was always one of my favorite things. Fantastic dialogue. Great stuff to say. Never had the opportunity for anything like that. Very Shakespearean, very highbrow. I love doing that, that, that series. That was a blast. You were so good in Baskets. Oh, thank you. Really fun to play that part. Yeah, Louis was magnificent in that. He won the Emmy and well-deserved. And Zach should have got one, too, for playing both of the roles he played. The twins. It was just so much fun and just off the wall. And it was, but it's played for real. Our director was, uh, and producer really had to grasp on what this thing was about. And kind of everybody in this reality of... Uh, a simple, a simple reality. The humor, I think, was because a lot of it was improvised. We shot it as written, and then we would improvise, you know. And when you get Zach Galifianakis and Louis Anderson improvising, but you know, you just jump on the pony and ride it any way it goes. It's like these guys, these guys are masters at it, and they just take you over the cliff and you go with them and learn to fly. <laughs> Really, 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 really fun. And and Jonathan, our director, is like, he's this easygoing guy that's got this sweet sense of humor, and he'll throw out something at you, and you just go, oh, my God, I'd have never thought of that, but thank you. And and you try that, and then he, he'd uh, he kind of just let the reins go, and then he'd pull you in. And, uh, and you didn't never knew which take he was going to use, and they were all different, or how it was going to match or how it was going to match her. And the characters are all so bizarre and so quaint and warm. It, it had a feeling about it that was like, I know these people. I like these people. They're really screwed up, but I really like them. It was a nice juxtaposition of, of emotions on that thing. I'm sorry uh, they, they didn't do a fourth season because I was just starting to love my guy, Uncle Jim. Were you actively shooting stuff when the world shut down? Yeah, we were doing. I wasn't in the middle of something. I I just finished stuff, and they it went stuff like that. And I have seen a couple of the of the of the movies that I made before they shut it down. One of them's called Into the Woods, uh, Jeremy Lanny, and uh, it's kind of like what's going what's going on in the country. You know, the, it's 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 kind of like Red Dawn a little bit. The, the country's taken over by the by the uh, Nazi kind of uh, group. 
and uh, I'm the head of the liberals, and we go into hiding in a, in, a, in a house up in the mountains, and it's it's quite a nice little movie. Then Danny Houston produced this once once the pandemic started. Once he produced this Zoom movie. I played the patriarch of this family. It's called We Are Gathered Here Together, and the patriarch is me. I'm a right winger, and I'm not going to wear a mask. And I get COVID, and I go into the hospital, and I die in a week. So I'm in a coma almost through the whole movie. In the center of the screen, in a bed, I went to a location for that, in a hospital bed with a nurse, and they got the, all, I'm all hooked up to all the equipment, and I'm in a coma. And the doctor's calling all my relatives, and they, there's 22 people that show up in Zoom mode and saying goodbye to me. And, and it's, uh, I've got a couple of wives and a mistress that they didn't know about and another kid they didn't know about and some surprised relationships that they didn't know about. And all these people come into play and it's like, you know, like craziness. And then I die. And then there's this uh, five minute sequence of video I did before I died, before they told me I was terminal. And so I come on video and you watch this video where I talk to everybody, all these people and tell them all the secrets and lies. Right. And it was really fun to do. And Danny Houston plays my son and he, he was in, in London. I was in LA, you know, he had to get up at four in the morning to do the thing. It's an interesting prospect. The problem with the thing for me was you don't have anybody to play with, really. I mean, yeah, you can play with the people on the screen, but it's not like having them there to play with. And the other problem, the main problem I had with seeing it after we, after we, after they put it together, was everybody has a different audio piece of equipment. Like I had this snowball, which is uh, this round thing. It's great, you know, and you can hear everything, and it's really fantastic. But people were using their iPhones, and some people were using their computers and everybody had a different sound setup so the sound was not uh, very smooth you know it was jerked jerk me out of the out of the process a lot they haven't figured that out yet how you're going to put that together and fix the sound I mean, i'm sure they're doing it now I and mean, there's all kinds of technical geniuses working at this stuff now that we can't really jump back in and shoot full-blown but they're, they're doing it they're getting tested every day and someone will get a COVID uh, announcement and then they shut down that person and they're in quarantine and I don't know how they're going to do it. It's, it's got to be difficult. You know, I'm so old that uh, people don't like to work with old people. I love to be on the set. It's one of my favorite places to be. I'm very comfortable on the set. I love the people, the crew. I love the cast. I love playing with people because that's what I've done for 50, over 50 years, 56 years, I've played for a living. I've never had to work. I've never had a job. All I did was play. And when you cut that out, it's like you're taking the fun away. I find my own fun. My wife gets, after we have breakfast, she says, you know, go out and play, little boy. And I go out to the yard, and I, I got these little places out here where I collect my wood, and I, I strip it, I sand it, I doll it together. Make, I don't use any nails. I make these boxes like trunks. And then I paint them. I make tables out of their wood. And, and I use a lot of Christmas trees for legs and arms. And So that's what I've been doing. And I filled up the entire guest house with all my trunks and tables and making animals even out of some of the wood. And 
I paint sticks. I cut branches off, peel the bark off, paint them. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a show. I don't know when, when we can all touch again. You know, but in the meantime, I'm perfectly happy just playing with my sticks. What was it like working with the Coen brothers on Hail Caesar? I love those guys. I love those guys. I had four auditions for that part, by the way. I've never seen anybody more organized than those two guys. That's why they're, they're just so prepared. They are so prepared. I went in. My agent says, you got an audition for the Coen brothers. I went, oh, great. So I went over, studied the scene, went over in the casting director's office. And I'm sitting in the hall, and I'm looking at all the storyboards and all the set uh, designs for this movie. Hail Caesar, all along the whole hallway. They've already up pictures all there up on the wall. And, wow, those guys are pretty organized. I auditioned. I went home. You know, a week later, I got a call back. I went in. I auditioned again. This time, it was for the casting director and maybe one of the one of the, one of the Cohen brothers. I'm not sure if they were there. The third time I came back, both of them were there. I did the audition. It was a really hot day. I did the audition. And uh, I remember that. And I, and, I, and I hopped in my car. I'm going to have a convertible. I drove away in a suit and tie, and it's boiling hot. It's like 100 degrees out. And so I took off the jacket. I took a shoes and the tie, and I'm driving home, and my phone goes off. And it's my agent. I said, they want you back. They want you have to go back right now. Go back immediately. I said, oh, okay. I turn around. I said, I'm not going to put my tie and shirt on again. I, I, it's just too hot. And I, and I park, and I go on in, and I walk in, and my a friend of mine, who knew them and it was a friend. I said, you know, give me some insight on these guys. And he said, they really like to laugh. <laughs> and that's all he said. You know, and I went, oh, okay. You know, and I walked in and I said, uh, I said this guy's name. And he said, oh, God, how is he? And I said, oh, yeah, he died. And I said, what? And I said, no, I'm just kidding. I started off like that, you know, and, and just going, oh, my God, don't do that. <laughs> And I said, I would have put the tie on, but, you know, you guys said I was just heading home. I mean, did you not watch me? I just was having a lot of fun with them. And they were laughing. I had a great time. And I said, I probably want me to come back and do it bigger, right? And they said, well, they said, actually, we were hoping you could do it smaller. <laughs> and I said, I've never heard that before. And they laughed. And, and I said, no, I can't. <laughs> and they laughed again. And we did it again. And it was great. And I got the job. I go over to my fitting and they made an entire outfit for you, you know, and a whole outfit. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's a period, period piece, but they wanted the director to have this kind of Eisenhower jacket and have this certain look. And so they're making, they're measuring me and making the whole jacket and like on the girls that are there. And, and, and that was like in, in July, I think, or something. And uh, end of August, they call me back for another fitting with the same stuff, see if they've made them right and everything. And they're looking, they made a few adjustments to it. And I come back like a month later and try it again. So three times I go back for the fit for the fitting. That's how organized these people are. So then when we do the, the movie, it was like bing, boom, bing, bang, boom. Clooney comes walking and the world stops. The biggest star on the planet. Oh my God. And, and, and he sees me and we'd worked together 25 years before that. I saw your name on the call sheet. He comes running over and gives me a hug. We sit down and people are looking, like, looking at me like, I must be important. <laughs> Clooney's And I look over at the brothers and, and they're like, oh, they know each other. Thank God. 
it was fun. It was really fun because both of them are direct. They're watching a monitor, right? And they'll go, cut. One of them will say, cut. And the other one will come running out onto the set and go, do that, do this, do this, do this, do this, and, and run back. And action. And the other one will go, cut. And the other one will come running in. Do that, do this. So it's like they, they share everything. They share the directing. It's, it's just like a family. They create this family. And it's a wonderful family. It's a safe place. I think the studios leave them alone. Somebody once said, I might have been one of them, that they have this little corner of the sandbox to play in, in Hollywood. And the big studios leave them alone. And they let them play in their little corner of the sandbox. And it's so, we're so lucky that that happens because mostly, you know, Gulf and Western or somebody takes over the movie and it's never the director's final cut. But they hearken back to the old days of filmmaking out here when the director was in charge. Love that. Absolutely love that. You talked about ad-libbing baskets. I heard that the Coen brothers don't really do a lot of ad-libbing. You know, they're so prepared. They want you to say their stuff. They're both writers. They both worked really hard to get their script written. They want you to say their stuff. And Walter Hill's the same way, by the way. He wants you to say his stuff. John Carpenter, too. The good ones want you to say their stuff. This is not free-for-all. We spent a lot of money and a lot of this shit, you know? Say it right. Well, Mr. Jason, thank you so much for your time. This is always such a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you. And uh, we'll do it again. You know, I love talking about this business because it's most, it's, it's what, you know, and we can't play right now, but this is the, as close as playing as we can get. And I love talking about this stuff. That's right. We are back, and we're talking about Alien Nation. And the one film that we didn't talk about in the first half of the show is one that, even when they were talking about when the aliens landed, and we were talking about how this was set in the very near future to 1988, when this when Alien Nation came out, and then I'm watching this other movie last night, and they're saying 20 years ago the aliens landed, and I was like. Is that a reference? Are they referencing Alien Nation? Because I feel in my heart that the closest we get to Alien Nation over the last 12, 15 years is 2009's District 9, which, again, I mean, talk about a very pertinent thing to bring out that this is a South African film, the heart of apartheid, and here we are talking about racial relationships. And I think it was even nicer that by this time, by 2009, we're able to have aliens that are 100% foreign from us. Different language, different looks, different body parts, everything. I mean, I like what they did with alienation, with the alien design, but if you're talking about true alienness, the aliens in District 9 just really push that envelope. It was an interesting movie that I was not expecting. I honestly didn't even know what it was. I mean, I saw it you know, maybe a couple of years after it came out and uh, just thought it was really cool, thought it was interesting, thought the way that they spun it, where it started off 
like a uh, sort of a pseudo found footage documentary. And then it kind of switched, switched gears and became like a movie movie. And it was just interesting. I liked the way that they handled it. And I thought that it was good. I think that it was a fantastic standalone film. I know now they're talking about doing district 10 and I'm just like, nah, it's too late. I think uh, it's just, it's not going to have, quite the same vibe and i think that what they're doing they were saying they kind of wanted to push the politics more with district 10 and it's like i don't mind politics being in movies but when your whole intent purpose is to push it then it's like beating you over the head with it and it's just not entertaining yeah there are right and wrong ways to do it and i think even though i've heard neil blomkamp get accused a lot of of lacking subtlety in that department I, you know, it hasn't bothered me so far, but he's also only three movies deep. So I feel like he's the guy that's, that he's, he's up there with like Guillermo del Toro and, and just like, it feels like once a week there's a new project announced with his name on it that never comes out. Apparently he's made a lot of shorts, but I've not seen them. Like the ones even after District 9, like, because yeah, he's made a few features and I am not impressed. I, haven't liked anything so far that he's done other than District 9. I mean, I'll give Demonic a chance when that comes out. That looks like a change of pace, at least. After the rapping robot, I was like, I'm I'm done. I'm fucking done. Oh, <laughs> I almost forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> like, this movie, I can't even believe this movie. That oh, I, I hated Chappie. I hated Chappie. I think that was one where I was lucky enough to know exactly what I was getting when I went into it. Well, in Elysium, I mean, you talk about pushing the politics too much. It's just like, oh, so the haves live up here and the have-nots live down here. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, anybody see Land of the Dead? (laughs) I mean, I liked Charlotte Copley in that one as more of the badass. I think he's the, the... the best thing to come out of that in general, because I think he's really, he's a really versatile guy and I don't think he's done enough. Say what you will about hardcore Henry and it's absolute plotless kineticism. He plays like 10 different roles in that and they're all amazing. He was an unbelievable find no matter where Blomkamp's career goes. Well, I didn't think anybody would be able to actually be Murdoch if they made a, Eighteen movie, but I thought he was really good. Yeah, he nailed it. But yeah, District 9, I love him. I really like the special effects. I really like the marketing to that movie because even year, like it felt like years before I saw the movie, I had seen that alien shape, that prawn shape that they had, where it was like, you know, humans only kind of thing. And then like the circle and the slash through the prawn shape. And then when the movie finally came out, I was like, oh, this is what I've seen. Like, I think that that came from the short that predated District 9. And it was smart to me to have that short as kind of a calling card and then be able to spin that into something else. But then, yeah, it just has been a dearth of ideas since then. Yeah, and I know a lot of that was just because I guess he was supposed to make a a Halo movie and none of them exist to this day. So (laughs) he just made something else with aliens and he's probably better for it. From what I had gathered was that they were supposed to make a Halo movie. They made all of these props and everything. And then the Halo movie got scrapped 
And it was like, all right, we've got all this stuff. What should we do? And he was like, hey, I've got this script. And they kind of repurposed a lot of the armor and stuff for that and used it on District 9 so that they weren't like wasting their money. And uh, it was kind of interesting because you really wouldn't know. It's not like you can see, oh, there's a warthog or something. You know, it's like, oh, oh well, look, it's Master Chief's helmet. <laughs> exactly. You know, which I'm sure there it's probably hidden somewhere they all right we got to throw this in here it's in the it's in a garbage pile or something you have to you know you get one of those well oh, here's the 10 things you never saw in this movie but i think that that was kind of cool and honestly i'm glad that we got district 9 instead of halo because more than likely a halo movie if it ever does happen it's gonna just be lackluster. I I, th- I can't see them ever doing that and doing it like well. I think we're just gonna end up with another big space movie where it's gonna end up being like every other action movie. Yeah, it'll be a big Roland Emmerich kind of thing. Like, all right, things blow up, we're done. The music will be yeah, really everything nice. will blow up and it'll be armor and ar- and Master Chief will take his helmet off and all the fans will lose their minds. Yeah, he'll because, take his helmet off in the first scene. Yeah, he's not supposed. It'll Stallone. be like Stallone in Dread, where because <laughs> <laughs> they they had to, you know, they they hired uh, God, who God, who even could be like I'm trying to think of what that would be Channing Tatum as Master Chief. That makes you wonder though, like how many movies have almost gone into production to the point where they've made everything they or a lot of the things they need to make and then they just throw them away like wasn't wasn't the masters of the universe movie like made uh, with like or no no wait it was it was cyborg yeah it was made from like from masters recycled of the universe. stuff from that's yeah masters they were supposed to make two, a masters sequel and, and they didn't yeah albert peon was like hey i can i can do st- i can do wonders with this and and took it and you know made and then by albert peon standards he did he certainly did <laughs> <laughs> they'll work uh to a certain point artwork uh props things will be made up uh and then it just the bottom falls out for one reason or another and then they've got all this stuff left over that you know somebody either throws into an archive or it gets thrown into the trash or you know somebody keeps it and then turns it into something else it probably happens more than we realize we just never really hear all the stories because there's so many and there's probably a lot of non-disclosure as well that too yes yeah, don't say that this came from this failed movie. We don't want that taint all over this movie. They did that script version of William Gibson's Alien 3. I'm surprised that they haven't done a comic book version of Blomkamp's Alien whatever number that was, where he was kind of rebooting it. I mean, we've seen those drawings of Hicks and Newton and Ripley. I'd be curious just to see the comic book. I don't know if I want to invest into the movie itself. Morbid as it sounds, I feel like he's probably just waiting for Ridley Scott to kick it. (laughs) That might be. Because once Ridley lets go, then they can go back to doing whatever they wanted to do. Disney's, like, sending him care packages of uh, stuff to just, please die so we can, you know, get all this alien stuff off the ground. And, like, I even liked Prometheus. And then what did he do? He made fucking spoof movie of Alien after that. I'll do the fingering. Oh, God. Like, there was a Three Stooges, like, slipping on blood gag in that movie. I just, I still can't get over it. I don't get mad about movies, but I was, like, angry. <laughs> Dude, Covenant made me furious. Uh, same thing. I like, the only thing I didn't like about Prometheus was that it was the dumbest thing where they were just, they did the hands up. I'm like, what? What? Um, when they're going to crash into the thing, it just, I'm like, okay, that's kind of dumb. Yeah, Covenant was infuriating, though. I, I was really looking forward to it. And then after it was over... I'm sitting in the theater 
and a bunch of people. It was kind of like how after The Last Jedi, where half the audience was like cheering and everybody else was kind of like, uh, what was that? Same thing with Covenant. Half the audience was cheering and the other half was just like, that was the biggest piece of crap I ever saw. It just felt like him saying, oh, you want an alien movie? Here's an alien movie, you sons of bitches. <laughs> Let's just completely kill off the surviving character from the last movie off screen instead of going on the grand adventure we promised. Let's do that. It would be interesting to see because all the production art and whatnot that came out of Alien 3 with uh, Blomkamp, it did show a lot of promise. It showed, you know, Michael Bain back and, you know, right now, well, not so much, but a few years ago we were getting the late sequel that ignored all the previous stuff. So there was the Halloween and there was like a couple other ones where it was just like, okay, yeah, the, none of the other ones happened. Here's the proper sequel. And I think that that would be kind of interesting if we did have an alien three, because I, I like alien three in both versions of, you know, the producer's cut and the original. Yeah. For what it is, it's a nasty little movie. And I like that. The concepts and everything in there are fantastic. My only gripes were that they had killed off Michael Bean and Newt. It was just like, you know, these two, they went through hell and it was just like, eh, eh, you're gone. And I guess, but it, they wouldn't have really worked in this environment. Uh, you know, you, you would have had, uh, Ripley being the protector again of, of Newt. And so it's, it's just a shame. I, I am interested to see what his version of uh, of it would be uh again it, you know not necessarily the movie but if they could do it in comic book form sure i would be absolutely down with that getting back to district nine one thing that kind of bothers me about the film i like it a lot and i like this whole idea of you know we're talking about how the newcomers and alienation came with nothing and when it comes to the aliens here in district nine that they have all these weapons on their ship. And now suddenly it's like, oh, great, weapons. And people's eyes just light up like, we can make lots of money off of this. This will be great. That's a great thing that's going on. There's a lot of great things that are going on. The one thing that makes me cringe is the Nigerians and how the Nigerians are living inside of District 9 and exploiting the prawns and then also... This whole witch doctor shit that's going on, it, it just feels, it feels a little racist to me. Well, it's, it's not unheard of that somebody trying to make a, a story about racism being bad can still accidentally be a little bit racist. <laughs> I've seen it happen many times. I used to work at a, at a college here in Philadelphia, and so th- this is just anecdotal, but I'll make of it of you uh, what you will. I used to work with a guy who was from Nigeria, and he loved it. And he is, he especially loved the Nigerian characters. So, you know, make of that what you will. I am very curious how Blomkamp got some of those performances, especially the man on the street interviews. Um, I did find it very interesting that he did have black characters that were talking about the aliens and just like, why can't they go home? And it's like, wow, we are 
how many years north of apartheid being abolished, and here we are turning things around so quickly where it's just like, send these people home, you know, get rid of these aliens. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I mean, of course, I know these are actors or these are performances. They're not actually saying this and, and trying to get folks out of here. It's not like repurposed footage of Ronald Reagan. But I was like, okay, this is nice that he's, you know, saying how quickly the tides turn. But then, yeah, it just felt like the Nigerians were like a lower strata. And I was like, okay, these aren't real Africans. These are Nigerians. They're not the South Africans that we know and love that Blomkamp grew up with. These are lower castes here. Yeah, they're not, they're not classy like Elon Musk. <laughs> Revisiting District 9 last night when I, I did a double feature of the two films, and I have to say it, it holds up. And yeah, you're right. Charlton Copley is definitely such a good actor and that it was so nice to see him come out of this. And I do really like that found footage aspect to a lot of it. And then how they play with that and that, yeah, when they make that break and that we still go back into the found footage stuff or like the documentary feel to it. And I like some of those things where they don't explain stuff where like his helper that was with him in district nine, um, his human helper, the, um, one black character that is helping him, that he's there in the correctional institute garb and stuff. And it's just like, okay, so, you know, we don't have to be told what happened to this character. We can tell by his outfit that things went really bad for him after this incident. And then that whole thing of the interview with the wife and then how we cut to, you know, almost verite shot of, uh, this alien who's making the flower. And I'm like, oh, that's really nice. And I mean, talk about being able to make you sympathize with something that is 100% not human and not cute and cuddly. Like, this is not Baby Yoda we're talking about. These aliens are kind of scary looking. And they're so nice, though. Like, the Christopher Johnson character is so nice. He's the kind of character you want to hang out with. Yeah. Well, back to the new, the new Suicide Squad movie. I remember hearing something about how with the King Shark character, they intentionally went out of their way with his design to make him less appealing, to make him like the anti-Groot. And like, unfortunately, it still didn't work and everybody loves him and they want to give him a big hug. <laughs> the personality shines through. When he's hiding under that sheet towards the end when they're in the <laughs> truck, I'm just like, oh, look, a cute little King Shark. He's so adorable. You know, the one movie that I kept thinking of a lot, down to the fact that the titles have the same font, I think, uh, I kept going back to the, the Dolph Lundgren movie, Dark Angel slash I Come in Peace, which that's, you know, a buddy cop movie where an alien enters in, you know, later in the story and there's an alien drug involved, but there's no like allegories going on, but it's like a very similar kind of thing. And it's really fun. Like, I don't remember the last time you may have seen that, but it's, you know, that's an incredibly enjoyable movie. And I feel like people don't talk about it enough. Oh, I love that movie, dude. Ev yeah, that is blast. one of the most explodey movies ever. Like everything oh God, blows yes. up. The, the, and the alien weaponry is just so cool. He's just got that gun that just ignites everything. And he's got the little, uh, the, the little tiny, um, CDs that are like homing missiles and, Dolph Lundgren and Brian Benben, the chemistry between the two of them is great. Like I yeah, really, one of the, the 
unsung buddy pairs. It really is. Like, they worked well together, and I was so sad that uh, it never got a sequel. That's one where I thought I would I wanted to see more with these two, because you could have had it where, all right, well, this alien, he died, and then uh, one of the other aliens comes down, and, you know, we've dealt with this before, and the two of them go after them, and just something cool like that. Uh, it it There was a lot of potential there, but I am glad that we at least got the one really cool movie, but you're right, it does have a a similar thing but i think that's more due to the cop movie formula like how many cop movies out there where you have two partners that are put together that are you know they're they're different they come together despite their differences and essentially they solve you know they they uncover a drug ring like there's so many movies where it's like all right we're gonna put these two cops together and they're uncovering a drug ring and in this case it was uh, an alien that was repurposing human I think it was adrenaline that he was taking and making into the the drug. Yeah, like endorphins or something. Endorph- yeah, it's something like that. And then, you know, but in Alienation, it was they, they were taking stuff and, you know, making drugs. And so, yeah, it's just I think that's more so just the the Hollywood not wanting to take too many chances. It's like, OK, well, we've got aliens. We don't need to change anything else. It was right after the 80s. So it was still, you know, well. Got to fight that war on drugs. Don't tell them that who's going to win the war on drugs. Going back to alienation, one thing, little minor thing that I'll say, I like the poster. I think the poster is just really neat. Yeah, it's a really beautiful poster. It's just, it's very subtle. You know, it just shows the aliens there and, and it has the, the, all the, you know, the text and, uh, you know, prepare yourself. And it's funny. Um, I had, uh, the movies now out, uh, on Blu-ray in the U.S. Um, but I had to import it from Australia and the Australian cover is garbage. It is so bad. It's just, it's, it's the two Sykes and Francisco like back to back. And there's like the, the alien in the background and there's a, um, like a cityscape. It's so just horribly Photoshopped. Like it's so bad. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. That, yeah. That is a terrible cover. Whereas that poster, like, there's no real focal point. It, the, like, the real one, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like, subtle, and those colors are just brilliant and perfect. And then I, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't so know what they were thinking like, with if, this other one. If I didn't know, I w- I'd be like, oh, God, what would this cost $5 to, to make this movie? This, you know, if they're going to put, but yeah, it's, that is one of the worst. Like, because a lot of times when a movie, for whatever reason, licensing or whatnot, where they'll have to make a new cover and the the cover that they make is almost always inferior, unless it's something like Shout Factory, where they'll hire somebody to do like an alternate cover, then it's usually like really cool. But this is just something where they hired somebody to do a really bad Photoshop. It's cheap floating heads. It's always oh, cheap floating heads. Yes, It's so bad. You know, another one that I haven't seen in forever, but this made me, like, just the, the tone made me feel like I need to go back to is the, the Rutger Hauer movie Split Second, and I don't know why. I just, like, something in my brain feels like it feels similar to Alienation, and now I feel like I have to go watch it just to see if I'm right or wrong. You should. Um, if you have Amazon Prime, it's currently up there. It just came out on Blu-ray earlier this year, I believe. It's an awesome movie. It's so much fun. That's another one. Yeah, it is a buddy cop movie. Uh, they're, they're, but they're they're going after like essentially uh, a demon, 
Oh, it's so I just good. remember it, it having that same kind of dark feel to it, like very nighttimey in a in a hard to describe kind of way. Just the color palette of the late eighties, early nineties that you just there's something perfect about that time in action movies. I agree. I was reminded a little bit of Peter Hyams' Outland. I guess the whole idea of the drug being manufactured and this kind of like mini war on drugs that's going on, especially because the drug makes you work harder and then it makes you crazy. I kind of like the idea of the drug putting you into like, if you OD on it, that it makes you a different creature. But at the same time, it's like, Oh, well now we don't have Terrence stamp anymore. So fuck me. Right. Who's this guy? That was the major difference with the show though, is that the show Instead of drugging them, like, it, it, it was, like, they still kind of drugged them, but it wasn't anything like that. It was just something that would make them purely obedient. It, it just turned them into, you know, I'll do whatever you say, boss. And which, you know, they get more mileage out of that over 22 episodes, for sure. Because <laughs> otherwise, they'd all just end with somebody overdosing. Yeah, and then it's like, well, now i got to shoot them in both of their hearts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, we didn't even talk about the... Uh, the ending theme song by the four tops. Oh God. <laughs> so weird. What is that song? Uh, yeah, that was, I, I was just, I was laughing the whole way through. Cause I was like, that can't be the four tops, but it, it sure as hell was. I guess they were having a mini Renaissance after, after a uh, little shop of horrors, but <laughs> that was such a weird thing. And it literally being a song about two hearts that, that was what got me. And the power of love. Like, what did the power of love have to do with this movie? <laughs> it worked, but it didn't work. At the, it's like, okay, yeah, but no. I mean, it's 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 perfect, but it's incorrect. It was weird to, you know, I mentioned the whole thing about like, oh, do this 20 years earlier and it, it could be about, you know, Asian people. I think that they were aware of that because how insensitive the one Asian character is, the, the mortician. Oh, yeah, my man from the Crane movies. <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, yeah, fuck these guys. He's just like so coarse the entire time. I'm like, wow, this guy gives no shits at all. Was it that character in the movie? or It was either the movie or the TV show. But one of them immediately goes to the mortician, like, eating, like, handfuls of food while they're talking. Like, that old thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that old gag. Now, like, I I, st- I would love to put together a list of how many times that's happened and where the hell it started. <laughs> yeah, I'm immediately thinking of, uh, like, I think Wolfen might have had a mortician that likes to eat as well. It's like, yeah, where? I blame uh, Quincy. I just immediately had the horn section going through my head as soon as you said Quincy's name. And a good uh, Asian sidekick in that one, too. Yes, uh, Sam, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so good. Sam Francisco, I think, is last <laughs> Well, I want to thank my co-hosts, Cecil and Josh, for being on this episode. Cecil, what's been keeping you busy lately, sir? I just put out a very, very, very long video uh, talking about the history of the Blob remake, uh, where I started with the original and uh, how the remake came to be. And I even go into uh, the Rob Zombie Blob that we 
probably thankfully didn't get where uh, it was going to be Sherry Moon Zombie versus not blobs, but there was a giant blob monolith that was turning people into blob zombies. It looked like it was going to be something, but uh, and so, but I don't know what. But yeah, so it was interesting. And so I did that vid- video uh, that is up on uh, YouTube uh, under uh, Good Bad Flicks. And uh, I'm currently working on a bunch of things. I'm working on a video on Dragonheart. I'm working on uh, the 1986 Running Scared. Um, I'm going to be doing one on um, Alienation, but that's, God, maybe later in the year if I can get that done. I've been talking to a lot of directors and people involved in various movies. I'm actually, uh, I had a, somebody who worked on this, since we were talking about Stallone's judge dread, uh, I was talking with one of the production guys on that who sent me a whole ton of, uh, really, really interesting stories that, uh, I don't think have ever been told. So I think that'll be funny because nobody really, talks about the judge dread movie and i think from a production standpoint i think it's excellent from a story standpoint i think it had a lot of problems yeah i i like i'll i'll say that's a fun movie but it's not a great judge dread movie outside of the first 10 minutes right i think it looks fantastic but um but yeah you know there's a lot of stuff about uh stallone's ego uh because at the time his ego was just like huge and uh he's come a lot more down to earth. Yeah, I, I I soon remember like between like Rambo two and Judge Dredd, the stories of him taking over almost every movie that he was working on went around a lot. Oh yeah, he was armchair directing the movie. You know, he really was one of the the reasons why they had to have him with his helmet off. And, I can uh, just I can just hear him going, well, "How are they going to know who I am if they can't see my face?" Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Like Nobody can recognize that mouth. Right. That, that crooked, <laughs> crooked smile. They can't tell. Right. You know. But yeah. So uh, I've got a lot of really good stuff coming. can't remember who it was that I heard. It might have been Stephen E. D'Souza talking about it. But he was talking about William Wisher and just how Wisher, basically his soul was crushed by working on that movie. Because I want to say he might have written for the comic books or he was like a huge judge dread fan and was like this is the dream you know he was super excited to work on this and then just died a thousand deaths as the movie started to roll into production if there's one good thing to come out of the judge dread movie it was that it was in production for so long that the guys who eventually did robocop were going and were trying to pitch a Judge Dredd movie and they couldn't get the rights because it was so tied up in that. So they ended up going off and making Robocop, which is awesome. And so if you go though, if you really like, I mean, I didn't know for the longest time, but then if you really go and look, Robocop pretty much is Judge Dredd. Oh yeah. And easy. It's, it's just like, oh, well, they had this idea and they really wanted to go with it. And we ended up with an awesome movie. Um, and I also like, uh, Robocop 2 and had, um, Robocop 3. I understand what happened. We had talked to Fred Decker for about two hours one time. He was explaining about uh, what happened with Robocop 3. And, uh, he also was talking about his ideas for Monster Squad and stuff. And, uh, yeah, he said that, uh, it's just, there was all kinds of studio. They were going bankrupt while they were filming essentially. And, uh, there's a whole, you know, thing about that. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, the, so we, 
a lot of people may not have liked Judge Dredd, but you know what? I'll take one fun, albeit not great, Judge Dredd movie because we have RoboCop and it, RoboCop's awesome. So, And we have Dredd. And we have Dredd, which is phenomenal, I thought. But sadly, Dredd bombed. And I had so many people telling me they didn't want to go see Dread because they thought that it was the sequel to Judge Dread. And it's like, no, no, no. It's don't. Do you not know what a reboot is? There's been a million of them now. <laughs> We'd already done it with Sp- Spider-Man. What, twice by that point? <laughs> yeah. Seriously. I was so sad because I, the movie, it, it deserved so much better. But uh, and now they're, they've been in talks if they're going to do the TV series, the Mega City One and all that. And I, at this point, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, Carl Urban basically said that he's up for it whenever. Yeah. He said, um, just say when I'll put on the helmet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I hope it happens. But at this point, I, I don't know. I think it might have been a little too long. Well, I am very excited to hear your episode on uh, Running Scared, by the way. I've been trying to put together an episode about that for years. I spoke once to Hyams, and I've been unable to get back in touch with him. His email bounces, his office phone doesn't answer anymore, so it's just like, okay, great, but would love to talk about that one, because it is such a great movie. and Incredibly fun. It, oh, I love that. It really is. It's it's a movie that definitely deserves so much more love and it's it's just oh, it's such a a bummer. Um and going on going slightly askew to talk about uh Peter Himes, uh I I was fascinated. I wanted to know the story behind A Sound of Thunder. That's one that I've always like Sound of Thunder is an absolute disaster, but I wanted to know when you see a director that is as talented as somebody like Peter Hyams and a movie like that comes out and it's such a mess, you know that there was a mess behind the scenes. And uh, I mean, that movie has, uh, I believe, 11 producers and I was able to get a hold of one of them who was awesome. He, I had a conversation with him for like a couple of hours and he, the problem was he let, like he was involved in pre-production, like he all the way up to production and then the company shifted hands. So I have a fantastic first half of the story and I can't like Peter Himes flat out will not talk about it. It ruined his career. He's very salty as well. He should be. Uh, a lot of other people have basically written it off. Will not talk about it. Will not answer and, you know, will not even respond. And so I got like one. So I may have to do one where I'm just like, okay, here's the fan. Like it's, it's a really interesting first half of the story. Like what happened all the way up to, cause it was already a mess before they even started. But going back to running scared. It is such a good movie, and uh, and looking at it on paper, you'd be like, "Wait a minute, Billy Crystal in like an action movie?" But no, it, it really works. It's such a yeah, good movie. He, he's just so cheeky every step of the way. <laughs> and and him and Gregory Hines, the chemistry between the two of them is just phenomenal. They're they're great, and they were planning to do a sequel, but it turned out that every time a script they had to get um like script you know the okay and every time they presented him with a script they're like no this is garbage they're like we're not Damn. they're like we will only do it if it's like the right script and the right script just never happened at least there was some quality control on that end 20 something years later i there there's a completely different running scared movie that i also think is pretty damn good there's actually three running scared movies 
Uh, there's I know one there's a third, where, but I haven't seen the other one. <laughs> yeah, there's a Judge Reinhold running scared. Uh, it's Judge Reinhold and, um, oh God, Ken Wall, I believe. Uh, Judge Reinhold and Ken Wall, and then there was this running scared, and then there was the running scared with Paul Walker. Uh, the running scared with Judge Reinhold is, it's corny, but it's fun. Uh, the running scared with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal is fantastic. And the running scared with Paul Walker is really, really awesome. I did a video on that a couple years That's ago. That's an insane movie. Yeah. The energy in that is fantastic. Yeah. I wish Wayne Kramer got more work because just on that alone was, oh my God, I love, love, love that movie. So Josh, what is going on in your world? You know, there's not a whole lot uh, to talk about other than having relocated to the Houston area and I'm working in an actual projection booth of my own again, which is very nice. Uh, other than that, I, uh, you know, do school things on the internet and play a lot of video games and watch a lot of movies. <laughs> and if anybody is interested in what I have to say about movies, I update pretty much everything on my Letterboxd, which I think is just my name. And uh, sometimes it's like an actual critical review. Sometimes it'll uh, tap into some deep childhood trauma that I'm going to try to, you know, dissect. You know, it, it's it's just kind of a diary for me, and I have a lot of fun with it. And people seem to enjoy uh, my thoughts on stuff over there. So, yeah, that's 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 it for me. Other than just using, you know, Facebook and and Twitter and stuff, and all that can be linked wherever. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.